Hey, super fans, you can join Terry, <laughs> Terry Farrell, the Trek experts in outer space, as we make the trek to the greatest Star Trek locations of all time, along of all with time, all time, everywhere all time. in the known universe, along with a galactic gaggle of Trek and sci-fi celebrities. Galactic. How much constitutes a gaggle? Well, I don't at, know. At, at least two or three. I have never right. bothered to calculate it. <laughs> well, pre-production has already begun, but you can get some great backer rewards and help us get production going this summer by joining us at MakeTheTrek.com today. That's MakeTheTrek.com. And check out everything you can do to support the Trexperts and Terry Farrell as we boldly go to the greatest Trek locations of all time. We may even tell you what God needs with the Starship. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the inglorious... Trexperts. We? <laughs> we are. I was trying to create You don't even drama, know what we are. But it didn't quite work. I, I got to tell you guys, in the history of inglorious Trexperts, there's probably no more controversial subject than Star Trek Three for some reason. I'm not sure why, but apparently it is. So for our 300th episode, we thought we would assemble a trio of the biggest Star Trek Three fanboys we could find to defend it from the slings and arrows of outrageous Trexperts. And they're going to explain why they think it's a great film. So to do this, we'd like to welcome back Picard Season 3 showrunner and 12 Monkey showrunner, Terry Metallis. Welcome oh, back, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. The uh, president of 20th Century Studios, Steve Asbell. One of us. Steve has nothing to say. Hello. <laughs> and, uh, and making his first appearance on the Trexperts, and we hope not the last, it's the president of Marvel Studios here in his capacity as a Star Trek fan, Kevin Feige. Hey, everybody. I, my first time for real, but I've been here in spirit uh, for many years. So thank you for, for having oh. me on uh, officially. First Very time nice. caller, long time listener. Very tough. <laughs> you, 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 you're there like Gene Roddenberry is often with us. You're with us in spirit. That's right. But Darren I'm, doesn't do I'm, an invitation. I am alive. I am alive. <laughs> you're alive. Mark, do you want to, is my the audio not working yet or no? No, you're fine. We, 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 hear, we you. hear you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm self-conscious. We can hear you, Carol. You can mention the, the anniversary of the year of what... Uh, well, I, I was just going to get to that, but thank you for teeing it up there, Steve. Uh, <laughs> one of the other things that's unique is 1984 is, of course, the 40th, make us feel old, anniversary oh. of the release of uh, Search for Spock, Star Trek Three. All that they've loved. All that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir? The word? Is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Bring on Bird Bracer. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! We're a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. 
Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Uh, which came out in 1,996 theaters across North America. It's the same summer as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, and Top Secret. And uh, it grossed a whopping $16 million in its opening weekend, which was actually the highest opening weekend gross, weekend gross of all time, uh, breaking Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan's record. And, oh, wow. uh, but it would not go on to the, uh, make the kind of money that Wrath of Khan did. It, it petered out at around 76 million in North America for a total of 87 million worldwide, which was actually pretty sizable box office at the time. And what and, was, and what was Wrath of Khan? Wrath of Khan was a little over 80 and right. domestically. Right. But um, Star Trek three costs more. Yeah. Yeah. So what, did, what did it go up? Because did it go up against Ghostbusters? It was summer. I remember I, I watched it in summer camp. They took it. They dropped us off at the movie theater. <laughs> well, I want to ask you guys that about, and that's, that's a good place to start. What were your first experiences seeing Star Trek? And Terry, you started talking about it, your experience of going to a theater and seeing it for the first time. I'd love to know where you saw it, what your experience was like, and what was your opinion, if you remember, of the film and how it has evolved uh, over the years? Well, it hasn't evolved much. I, I loved it. It's one of the first movies that I remember seeing in the theater because I saw it. It's actually probably the first movie I saw multiple times. Uh, I, I went opening weekend with my parents who were big Star Trek fans. I was nine. Uh, and uh, all of it burned into my DNA. I mean, there's a reason Space Dock appears in Picard season three because I've been I wanted to have Space Dock again for so long. It was Sorry, um, and so <laughs> and then goes what Darren? How do you not like Space Dock? What kind it's of big and stupid like? looking? Show us on the doll where Space Dock after the you. after the grace of Dry Dock <laughs> in in Star Trek the motion picture. It's, well, look, we'll, we'll go into this later. I, 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 I don't want like to of, of dry dock. Um, the, <laughs> I don't want to uh, bury my lead. You know, I mean, '84 was a big year. Yeah, Ghostbusters right after. So there's that. There's all that. But um, you know, I, 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 I certainly at that point had been raised on Wrath of Khan. You know, my my dad had bootleg illegal VHS tapes uh, back in the day. He was one of the first people. So we, I had seen Wrath of, uh, of Khan, and I, I, you know, it's, uh, I love, for me, it's one of the first real, even though I've watched original series stuff, it's one of the first real introductions to Star Trek, and it's probably why the more emotional sort of family, crew, crew as a family stories resonate the most with me. And by the way, Terry, totally unrelated, congratulations, it's the first anniversary of the debut of Picard season three, and I can't believe it's a year. <laughs> And uh, as uh, wow. everyone knows, it's uh, awesome. Congrats, we all can agree on that. We do love. So, Thank uh, you. well, Tov. Thank uh, you. Kevin, what about you? What was your first experience with um, Search for Spock? Do you remember? I remember the posters for it in the, in the theaters. And, I, and I'm actually not sure if I saw it in a theater or if I saw it on, on video afterwards. Wrath of Khan, I did not see in a theater. Wrath of Khan was one of those movies that I discovered back in the day when HBO would just show the same thing over and over and over and over. And, and 
and I only saw it in bits and pieces. I saw it may I may have seen three in a theater, but it was certainly on video that I started rediscovering them. And then by the time four came out, it, I saw that in a theater a million times. I was like right. fully on board and explaining to people the glasses that he got in Star Trek two and then sold in Star Trek uh, four. <laughs> and it, so I, by that point, I'm totally I'm totally into it. But I don't know if I actually saw it in a uh, in a theater. I think I was too busy seeing, yes, Ghostbusters and Temple of Doom over and over. But your parents weren't Star Trek fans. No, no, they took they took me to see the motion picture when I was that was seventy nine. The motion picture, yeah. Mm-hmm. So whatever, I was six years old and yeah. slept through slept through most of it. Did you find Dry Dock elegant? Great. <laughs> Extremely. And by the way, the, all the effects in that movie are are, are the, probably the best of the whole series. And that Dry Dock sequence and the and the Goldsmith score that goes along with it, I used to listen to in my bedroom as a kid and like get much too excited than, than one should. I would imagine <laughs> uh, uh, like what, what kids would, were doing when they were going to see Duran Duran, I would stay in my room listening to, uh, listening to the Enterprise track uh, and, and contend that it's better than you've, uh, uh, you've just, Duran gained, Duran. you just gained a point on my <laughs> listing here. <laughs> that classic Duran Duran song, Geeks on Film. So Steve <laughs> Asbell. What about you? You remember your uh, first experience? Similar. I mean, I do time. remember seeing it on screen. Um, but I, but what was interesting about it was, I think, after having gone through, you know, Empire to Jedi, like what was happening in my grade school, I was, um, again, we're around the same age, that we were really interested in the sort of cliffhangers, you know, back where we would, uh, you know, wait three years for each one um, yeah. or two in this case. And kind of theorize about what, like, that was really fun. And I don't think there were any other movies other than Star Wars and Star Trek at that time that really had that sense of, especially after Empire, obviously, the big one was the first one we were like, what the, you know, raging debates about whether he was really his father or not. But then um, not when when we finished, we were talking about three and coming out of it, all I remember was that the big debate was, they were going to get the Excelsior. Like that was the big thing yeah. that they were going to come back, and they like we didn't even think about oh, are they all going to get you know shit can from Starfleet? But we were like, no, no, what's going to happen is this, and they're going to turn the Excelsior into Enterprise, and it was like that. The earliest memory I have of really talking to my friends about what could happen in the next movie, and it was like those. I remember those two, um, like eighty to eighty-five, kind of those Star Wars and Star Trek being. You mean like um, is Boba Fett Han Solo's mother and stuff like that? Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Well, by the, the, yes, and, and Han Solo being the other because he uh, used Luke's lightsaber to cut open the Tauntaun. That was a he was the was only other part. character to ever wield a lightsaber other yeah. than a Jedi. Oh, really? I yes, never. That was that, that argument was made throughout the lunchroom. As, sure was. Uh, as I recall. But I, can I just say something about that? I do miss the vacuum of information on a film. Now, of I mean. You know, obviously, I I just go online. Any any information I can get now about anything, but the dark ages of you didn't know what it was even going to be until that trailer came out. You know, is 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 it's it's such a different experience because audiences' expectations are you didn't they didn't really have them. You know, they were just right. like I don't know what they're going to do, and then the trailer would tell you. Now you have an entire community that can debate and basically break 10 versions of the movie 
that you're going to make before you that you have to compete against uh, as a filmmaker. It's I just miss the nothing. You know, I want to come back to a, <laughs> this idea of the cliffhanger later because, of course, uh, none of us were watching the old Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon serials, unless I'm mistaken, uh, as 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 kids uh, growing up. So we, you know, Empire was really unique in that it left on a cliffhanger, which was not something we had really experienced having a major motion picture, you know, sort of just abruptly end and, and with more story to tell. And then Star Trek three, of course, it was very similar. Like spoiler alert. He says, your name is Jim. James Horner's music swells. And we're like, okay, we're ready to go on this trip. And the movie ends. What was your feeling about how the picture sort of abruptly ends and sort of paves the way for the inevitable Star Trek four. I'll start with you, Steve Asbell. I didn't feel like it was as much of a cliffhanger in that way, in the sense that the, the story they were telling resolved with Spock being restored and resuscitated. And the idea that they, that they, you know, I mean, the love, the, I will recommend you all for promotion and whatever fleet we end up serving, you know, that there was some openness to, what was going to happen to them, but that it didn't matter in a sense because they had saved his friend's life. I mean, I actually think to, you know, I was watching it again, uh, Terry and I were going back and forth a little bit about it. Like, I, I just, the pace of the movie is really, like, I don't think about three as being the one that's really well paced. And yet, like, Stealing the Enterprise doesn't start to like 50 minutes in, 40 something minutes in. Yeah. And the movie ends exactly when it should, in a way. Yeah. Like, it's sort of on the absolute emotional moment of like, not only have they, you know, brought him back, but the big question of he is not himself, is he going to be Spock again, which is, of course, like the big magic trick of the movie, and then he just goes, your name is Jim, and you're out. And it's like, I actually felt more like, not that two was a cliffhanger, other than the fact that if you were not ready for Spock to die, maybe, but um, but I guess, like I said, what, now, I say that now, but back then I was like, you know, oh, they're going to be Whatever. It was really just about them getting the Excelsior, to be honest, but which I love. But, you know, it's interesting because back then it was two years between movies, you know, yeah. three years between Empire Star and Jedi, Wars but two. Star Trek was two years, which was seemed a reasonable amount of time to wait, uh, you know, as opposed to like a Bond movie where you're waiting like eight years for the next one to come out. Um, but, uh, you make a really interesting point about this whole idea that so Spock emotionally it's satisfying. What's interesting, it could be apocryphal, is Leonard told the story that the studio wanted to cut all the stuff on Vulcan. And whether that was financial or because they felt an audience that wasn't familiar with Star Trek wouldn't know what all this was. So they wanted them to save Spock and then basically get his uh, Katra back in his body in sick bay on the Klingon Bird of Prey and end it yeah. there. Because God. they felt that the action wow. was the end and not the emotional uh, uh, thing at Occidental <laughs> College. A pretty awful studio note, if it's true, wouldn't you say, Kevin? Terrible. Terrible. Because that <laughs> ending is so amazing. And that they take the time, that the movie essentially just stops to do this uh, ceremony is awesome. But it also looks exactly like a muck time. So if you are a fan, right, you, you, mm. you're back on Vulcan there. Uh uh, I, I I loved it, and I love all the shots of the crew looking on, and 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 even and even Kirk pacing around while it's happening, yeah. uh, as if you know what's going to happen. And it also what is also super impressive is when is when Spock walks past, 
Yes. So actually, there's a chance that that's it. That's all the yeah. Nimoy you're yeah. getting. And then he stops and turns around, and that's the that's the bonus. Your name is Jim is the is the emotional bonus. But it's so it's so ballsy to just go the search for Spock, his his crystal face is the teaser poster, right? And yet you don't you see him almost hardly at all in the entire movie until he turns back around and pulls his hood down. Yeah. Pretty darn good. Darren, I gotta ask you, um, because uh, you know, there's been a lot of times where they've attempted to uh, you know, get oh Tom Hanks to play Zephram Cochran or um, Eddie Murphy in Star Trek Four. You know, put 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 a big name in there. Now people don't realize, but at the time, getting Dame Judith Anderson from Rebecca to play the Vulcan priestess was like actually a pretty big deal. McCoy, son of David, since thou art human, we cannot expect thee to understand fully what Sarek has requested. Spock's body lives. With your approval, we shall use all our powers to return to his body that which you possess. But, McCoy, you must now be warned. The danger to thyself is as grave as the danger to Spock. You must make the choice. I choose the danger. Hell of a time to ask. It, 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 it was for everyone except the young audience that had no idea who she was. Um, you know, half post posthumously, uh, we know how important she was and how, uh, what an iconic, uh, figure she cast. Um, but I don't think, uh, anyone certainly my age or younger, had any idea who the heck she was, uh, other than the, the fact that she got a one-card credit uh, up there. Um, you know, that's great. Obviously, she is someone of note, and maybe someday I'll look her up and find out who she was. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, the Look, the, the basic uh, premise here is that we don't hate Star Trek III. We enjoy it. We enjoyed it when we first saw it. The difference is that we, at least me, uh, I am trying to separate my emotional connection with it with my intellectual curiosity and, and criticism of it. That's very Vulcan um, of you. I'm, very you know, I, I can only try. I'm, I'm uh, mostly human. Well, we will That's try mostly conduct the Faltor band and bring those things back together. <laughs> the uh, refusion. Ashley, yes, sir. Ashley, uh, you know, we, we've, we've gone very easy on this, and I, 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 we'll get to the more debate, debatey part of this. But we're talking about the, sort of the ending, and, and as a cliffhanger or not as a cliffhanger, uh, emotionally satisfying. Uh, it, it, you know, is it the, the the right ending to a major motion picture? Um, what was your feeling when you saw it? We didn't really hear from you. I'd love to hear what your thoughts, you know, were at the time. Uh, look, it, all of my my reservations about the film. Uh, notwithstanding, uh, I think that it does a couple of things exactly right. One is stealing the Enterprise. Two is that it sticks the landing. And that last scene, I think, was was perfect. Even at the tender age of 12, 13, when that came out, I, I loved that ending. 
And, you know, I think, Kevin, you nailed it when you said it was the, the bonus was Jim. Your name is Jim. Because suddenly it, it brought everything together. It wrapped it up in one line. And the great virtue of it is it didn't overstay its welcome. It understood that it was done, that it was over, that everything had been resolved. I think that movie clocks in at 105 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it is, it knows exactly what it is. Um, and where it's going and, you know, the stops along the way we can, we can debate. Um, but I actually, I, I love that ending. And in fact, the only, I think the only real problem with that ending is it does kind of leave the franchise in a place where you think of it as the franchise, maybe not back then, but it it does kind of leave the franchise in a place where, well, shit, everything is resolved. You know, what do you do now? And you kind of have to restart everything. And you do see an issue with that in four and five and six. Uh, and it, they, there was never anything like that again in those, those Star Trek films. There were callbacks, certainly. Um, and there were issues that resurfaced, but the story was done and it, it ended beautifully. Yeah. I also want to say, I, 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 I cheated. I rewatched, I changed the conditions of the test. I rewatched <laughs> the, the, the movie before this podcast. And, um, one thing I have to say, I've been very dismissive of, of uh, Charles Carell's uh, cinematography in the past. However, mm-hmm. If you watch the new 4K, yeah, it's a much better shot really movie than I've given it credit for. I and I think experience. because the we've looked at really bad transfers and TV TV masters over the last 40 years, and probably, you know, even the theatrical projection was pretty awful back in uh, 1984. Um, and it's a much better looking movie than I remember it, and particularly this Dakota, um, yeah. which they shot at Occidental University, Occidental College. Um is 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 pretty. It's is, is really well shot. It's well done, and it has some nice scope to it. As Gene Roddenberry called it, the Cecil B. DeMille ending that Leonard wanted. Right. Um, but yeah, it uh, does. It's got those beautiful wide shots, matte matte paintings as they may be. They're they and they, they hit them a couple times, including that last that last shot of the movie. Yeah, and I would also continue. say things like the mind meld where Sarek comes to see Kirk is really beautifully done. Like mm-hmm. I had the same experience, Mark, watching the new, yeah, the, the new the tight new shots on the, on yeah. And just yeah. lips and his eye and it sells the emotion of something that could be pretty goofy. I mean, it can be goofy if done, you know, anything can be goofy if done wrong, but just in a cinematic way that had never been really attempted in, in, cause it never had an occasion to, I think in the series um, to make it, not only he's reliving the emotional moment of Spock's death, but also the kind of sense of the invasion of a mind meld being like cinematic. Like I, I thought that was pretty good. But I also, what's kind of, I realized that well, not probably not this time, but how the film educates you on the last conversation with Kirk and Spock with the, you know, the opening small mm-hmm. desatch thing coming in, you play that, you do it again with Sarek so that by the time you're the you're with the end and Spock is kind of then they're switching the words to to get his memory the audience it knows what comes next and it's more right. it's so much more powerful i just wanted to say uh i think the mvp of the movie is james horner though mm-hmm. and, absolutely you know one of the criticisms i've heard people say is like oh he's just doing his wrath of content i i not at all um you know, speaking again of Vulcan, because I was, I was, they sent this picture to even Kevin before we came up. Because we're, I think we were all watching it right before we came on. But was is the shot of the bird of prey landing on Vulcan and the lights on it, and and James Horner just, it's so emotional, so powerful uh, throughout. I think, 
I, I, I often think every day, and I mean it every day, I wonder what James Warner would be composing if he were still alive. Like what movies did we not, I mean, he would have shown I never up. Met him. I, never, I never met him or got to work with him, but, but <clears throat> wish I had. And it was those two, Star Trek two and three, in cocoon, by the way, we'll do it we'll yeah, absolutely podcast with you guys someday, and I'll and I'll <laughs> and alien, yeah. is just is maybe my favorite of all of his. But two and three are so good. Um, and that beginning of the movie you mentioned, Terry, it's you know I've I've worked on a lot of sequels, and and there's a hesitancy that you don't want to have to tell a story in a new movie that will require a previously on. Right. right, we would always joke say you don't want a previously on, but the truth is they did it so well, and and changing the color and starting smaller right. as it came is yeah. so beautiful that it's that it's perfect. Yeah, I also just love the way that one and then four start right, essentially right where the last one ended, yeah. which we well, haven't also, done much in, in our in our movies, but I always liked it. Cry Kid Two, as you remember, also did oh, that yeah. really well. And then, uh, yeah, hey, she's hey. already dumped him after Back the bomb. Your, so that's crazy. Right. But she back to your, she your comment. Back to your comment on the uh, "Your name is Jim" scene. There again, Horner uh, really hits the nail on the head. Right when it, Spock says that, he courage. goes into the original theme, and yeah. that just you know that melts you. It. Yeah, you know, for those of us who it meant something to, it was astonishing. Yeah. Because they don't, they, they never the, play that in Wrath of Khan. They hadn't, they hadn't yeah, ever played they, it. Motion picture, oh, they except motion picture yeah. twice. Yeah. But yes, but, uh, they hadn't, but they hadn't gone for the jugular. Yeah, it's the perfect place to do it. We, we, we went to the corner a little sooner than I thought uh, we were going to. Uh, I have to say that uh, Kevin, I, I prefer his score, his score for Cocoon: The Return, actually. And, oh my god! Uh, to, uh, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's a bad movie. It's a but terrible it's a great, movie. It's a great teaser poster yeah. and a great score. How many That's bad like movies have Alan Silvestri Predator Two? Is a better score yes. than Predator. I, I agree. Sylvester's um, score for Predator Two I, is better. I, I just want to add one quick thing on that front because, again, one of the fun things watching rewatching movies as a as an adult and a professional is kind of noticing things that, that you wouldn't that the audience thankfully doesn't. I was I was kind of amazed that like as I was watching it, there's no score for the entire David's death and then yeah. his yes. his grieving on the bridge. Not until mm-hmm. they start the um, the fight. It's a it's a really smart choice to it, leave. Yeah, that I was drive. like, oh my god, there's no score. Like, which you could already be like, oh man, you know, uh, you gotta have it. You gotta. The, it's pretty great. No, I thought that was a brilliant. We, we got to totally get to that because we'll get to that. You killed my son. All right, right sorry, we're jumping. We can't help it. We're trying to. No, no, I know, I know. So much conversation has a, has a mind of its own. It's like, I, I did want to say that with Horner, I I think that is a big part of why people who like the movie think it's a better movie than it is because Horner it carries the movie on his back and mm-hmm. elevate. I mean, it's a better Aww. score than Star Trek Two. He elevates the movie so much through this beautiful score and he's adding an epic scope where none exists he's he he's bringing emotions where it's not quite earned but it's so effective and um it was one of harv bennett's best decisions that when they agreed to have horner do star trek 2 they said we'll do it on the condition that you do star trek 3 because horner didn't really want to do star trek 3 but he honored his commitment to do it because he'd given them his word because they'd given this huge break to do, um, you know, to do uh, Star Trek Two, 
um, or he could have been stuck in Roger Corman land a lot longer. Um, but it's uh, it's that'll really Battle Beyond the Stars, not dissimilar to some of the very very for it. Music work, yeah. yeah. Maybe <laughs> Aliens has got the whole the whole Klingon, yeah, like all that sure. stuff he uses. Yeah, I want to because we're going to talk about you know what we like, what we love, what we don't like about the movie. Um, I want to share with you real briefly what some other notables had to say. Um, David Gerald says Star Trek Three is a dreadful movie. There's no story there. It's still a wonderful picture because the characters are so wonderful. The scenes are so wonderful, and it's crisply directed. You don't care how bad the story is. Uh, <laughs> D. Kelly played McCoy, for those of you at home who don't know. Uh, I enjoyed watching Star Trek Three more than I did Star Trek Two. This one comes closer to the TV series than the others. Interesting point we'll come back to. Walter Koenig. I wish I could do the Walter Koenig voice like Darren, but I, I can't. I was going to say, Darren, you got it right here. I, I felt it was too similar to Star Trek II in terms of the major conflict. The bad guys wanted the bomb, and we are trying to keep them away from it. It lacked a soul and a real emotional center, and it was not as good Star Trek, good a story as Star Trek II. Now we're getting uh, to the... Uh, Mark, it was not as good a story as uh, uh, Star Trek II was. Um, and I thought it was far similar to uh, uh, Trek Two. Uh, well, what did you it think of your costume design? It's very good. good. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't. I I'm wasn't told to walk I, off the stage. I wasn't. I wasn't told that I could uh, complain about my costume. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have if I had known. <laughs> He's walking. <laughs> the Pushkin, the pink Pushkin outfit. They're, walking and 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 Koenig are very similar, very close. So. Although, you know, Christopher Walken as Chekhov would be pretty great cast. No, I, 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 I have two more <laughs> comments that are, I think are really interesting. Roger Ebert said this yeah. is good but not great Star Trek. A yes. sort of compromise between the first two. The first film was, a, well, you're not going to like this, Darren. Yeah, no, the first I know. film was a Star Wars road company that depended on special effects. The second movie, the best one so far, remembered what made the Star Trek TV series so special. Not its special effects, not its space opera gimmicks, but its use of science fiction as a platform for programs about human nature and the limitations of intelligence. And uh, Janet Maslin, the New York Times, said Star Trek Three finds the same old gang in a gloomy mood. Spock <laughs> is dead. The Starship Enterprise is ready for mothballs. Even the crew's 23rd century leisure suits are beginning to seem passe. Wait, it's not hard to feel while watching the opening sections of the latest Star Trek series that you're getting a little too old for this kind of thing. And uh, that objection. they are too. Objection. Are these contemporaneous accounts? Were these yeah, these are contemporaneous. They were all no, from I, 1984. Okay. But then she, okay. she starts to take the turn. No further she, questions. No. You remember okay. back when they were actual, you know, Real movie reviewers. But yeah, Star Trek and they 3, really loved, let me tell you, they really loved uh, uh, Star Trek and sci-fi in general. But right. sure. She she exactly. pivots, though, right? Because you, 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 you jumped in too soon. But she says, but Star Trek 3, which opens today at nearly 2,000 theaters across the country, um, and dozens of them here, is helped by the gung-ho spirit with which the cast, director, and screenwriter approach their material. They all seem to believe wholeheartedly in the Star Trek saga, relishing every bit of jargon, every new space creature, every weep and bleep of their computer screens. Leonard Nimoy, who directed the third installment, hasn't matched the playfulness and energy of Star Trek II, but he's way ahead of the first film, <laughs> making up in earnestness what he lacks in style. That kind of conviction, while sometimes verging on undue self-importance, goes a long way towards making the material touching. And last but not least, one of the few times I've agreed with this man, Ronald Reagan said it wasn't a good film. 
How dare he? Oh. oh my God, I wasn't expecting that. So that wow. gives you, well, they showed it at the White House. And uh, that was his response. But he probably slept through it. So. Wow, can you imagine? Was that, that was in the newspaper when it came out? President Reagan no, said. No, it was in, uh, it was in uh, one of the books about his uh, presidency uh, uh, by his like chief of staff or something. Oh, it wasn't publicized. It, yeah. was, it, wasn't, it wasn't publicized at the it time. It wasn't widely yeah. known at the time. Yeah, yeah, but those were all contemporaneous accounts, which I thought would sort of be interesting as we begin our discussion. Don't go away. Episode 300 of the Truck Spritz will be right back with an amazing conversation about Star Trek Three after these brief commercial messages. mountain too high, no ocean too deep, no mystery too controversial for our investigative camera teams. This is Leonard Nimoy inviting you to share our discoveries on In Search Of. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, if you're a fan of the Inglorious Trexperts, you don't want to miss Deck 78, our subscriber-only podcast, which deals with pop culture and Trek-adjacent subjects. It's a pretty spectacular podcast with amazing guests and conversation every other week. And the only way to get it is to subscribe today. So go to trexpertsplus.com. That's trexpertsplus.com to subscribe to Deck 78. Fire the rockets. The Trexperts are back on the road again as We're our glorious. We're, We're back, back, baby. We're back. The Inglorious Live Tour continues back. in 2024. And we're visiting some great cities near you, so don't miss a chance to get exclusive Trexperts merchandise, autograph posters, and see us moderate conversations with the biggest stars in the Trek universe coming to a galaxy or at least a city near you this year, including Richmond, Virginia, Anaheim, California for WonderCon, Oklahoma City, May 24th through 26th, San Diego, California, for Comic-Con with Mark and Ashley, July 24th to 28th. But if Mark and Ashley aren't your cup of tea, well, at, where are they going to find you, Darren? Well, I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th through 28th. Me only. Wow. It's the Trexpert tour. You get Darren all to yourself. Yeah, right. And then we'll all be reuniting, and it feels so good, in San Jose, California, August 18th you know the way? The 18th. I do I know, know the way, way to San Jose. And maybe we'll go up north to look for the nuclear vessels while we're there. 
Well, and we're bringing it on all home in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th to the 8th. So if you want to know what guests will be joining us and how to get tickets, go to galaxycon.com, comic-con.org, or trexpressplus.com. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you around the galaxy. Um, Ashley, Sir. Uh, tell us why this is a flawed movie, in your opinion. What, what, what about it? It doesn't work. Oh, where do I begin? Um, I mean, look, the, uh, uh, and I've, you know, paid, uh, proper, uh, respects to the, to the things that I think do work. And by the way, I also think the opening, uh, recalling Star Trek II works extremely well because it, it emotionally platforms everything that happens next. It establishes previously on Star Trek. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't function like here's information you need to know to follow the plot. It's emotional context for where Kirk's head is at so that you understand the story that he's in so that when you get to the end and your name is Jim, it all clicks. It is a story about the friendship between these two men. It is a story about grieving. Um, it's, it's about all those things. At least those are its intentions. I think where it starts to fall down is in spite of the fact that I give it points for being, um, for not wearing out as welcome. I, I do feel like it's kind of structurally, structurally all over the place. Um, I, like it, the, and we've talked about this when we did our, uh, our commentary on Star Trek three, but just the, the beginning sort of feels a little jumbled and, and weird. Like, um, there are, there are definitely, uh, story moments that don't necessarily make a hell of a lot of sense, like the bar scene with McCoy, uh, even though like I, I like some of the stuff that happens in that scene. Um, there are that other guy story questions thing. that arise. Alan like, Miller? Huh? Alan Miller? I don't know who it was. He's fantastic, though. As the alien? Oh, the yes! alien guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was just, it was just the premise of the scene I found weird. Um, I don't understand and, why Sarek shows up and says, you dicks <laughs> left my son's body on Genesis. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Hey, man, how about a ship? <laughs> you know, dad, you're like the Vulcan ambassador. You can't swing like a Vulcan science vessel, you know, grease some bombs. Ambassador, I would have come to Vulcan to express my deepest sympathies. Spare me your human platitudes, Kirk. I have been to your government. I've seen the Genesis information and your own report. Then you know how bravely your son met his death. Why did you leave him on Genesis? Spock trusted you, and you denied him his future. My son of future? Only his body was in death, Kirk, and you were the last one to be with him. Yes, I was. And you must know that you should have come with him to Vulcan. But why? Because he asked you to. He entrusted you. With his very essence. With everything that was not of the body. He asked you to bring him to us. And to bring that which he gave you. His katra. His living spirit. Sir. Um, even though that scene, by the way, is terrific. Yeah. Uh, my my brain starts activating, which is always a problem. Um, but beyond that, like I, I I think I don't know that Christopher Lloyd was great casting, or at the very oh. least, I mean, uh, look, I think he is he's enjoyable he's and he's over the done. top, and it's Reverend Jim, and he's very a Klingon, done. but that and that's great. Uh, but he's not a great villain. Um, he's merely okay. I do like that John Larroquette from Night Court 
is malt. I think that's that's pretty great. I think there's a whole. Terry and I had a whole uh, malt, waiting to happen. Uh, idea. Um, Terry had a great idea. Yeah, we're gonna we gotta swing back to malt later. Okay, letting Merritt Buckrick carry like the B story is not a great choice, people. Um, he he wasn't well cast really truly in the first place. He's some of the, the weakest casting from Star Trek too, but he kind of worked in a context. When you've got B.B. Beshin, you've got William Shatner kind of carrying him, he's fine. But when he's by himself and you have poor Robin Curtis, who is a lovely, wonderful human being and a great actress who is being directed to be boring by Nimoy, um, what you've got are these very inert scenes that are happening against styrofoam. And holy crap, it just, it kills the film. It kills the film. Um, there is a bit of uh, stupid Starship Captain Syndrome where you've got J.T. Esteban, who is, I think he makes John Harriman look like John luc Picard. Uh, and by the way, that's a deep cut. Wait, are you, are you talking about how, how by the book he is? Are you talking about the... He's just a little, of, he's those, just a little, like... The captain of the Grissom, you're talking. He's incompetent. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he he's just incompetent. doesn't feel competent. He can't make a decision. He right. relies on uh, his superiors to uh, to choose things for him. He is not decisive. He doesn't do anything correctly. Right. At least Styles is just an that, a-hole. You know, me, it's like, yeah. like kind of like Styles. The most <laughs> realistic version of what, like, I don't know. We've all been around. Well, I, I deal with people like that all Basically the time. Basically, all uh, all uh, of us studio presidents. So yes, yeah, this is the future. <laughs> you just described. This is where people have protected go. themselves. I gotta go. Indecisive. <laughs> it's like, what if Steve Asbell yeah. was a starship captain? Relying on other people's. Yeah, well, Steve, no, is, uh, Steve, is that a fair <laughs> criticism? Because does I mean they're saying, oh well, he's not Kirk, right? He's not in command. He's not a leader. But do you need to be someone who is? In charge, large and in charge. If you're a starship captain, would some would someone like that get promoted to be captain of a ship who is so officious and so unable to make a decision? I mean, the reason I never it never bugged me was that it was a science vessel right. that you know basically was. I mean, I would, if anything, expect him to have some background in the sciences in some fashion, and kind of that would be his thing. But I didn't mind that he wasn't Kirk or you know, kind of one of those kinds of you know, Matt Decker type of captain because he was like middle management. Like that's kind of what that was. And I actually kind of buy that, that he sort of is very cautious and kind of doesn't really know what to do in a real situation. Like when is he going to find himself in a moment like that where he's the only ship in the whole, you know, uh, cordoned off quadrant to kind of do this one thing that might change the whole galaxy. And he's like, uh, that I gotta opens check up with a whole other issue, Steve. But keep I going. gotta check with Starfleet. You know, I don't want to do. You know, he's he's yeah, he got the job. We'd hope to take her back to Genesis. That is out of the question. May I ask why? In your absence, Genesis has become a galactic controversy. Until the Federation Council makes policy, you are all under orders not to discuss with anyone. Your knowledge of Genesis. Consider it a quarantine planet and a forbidden subject. Well, it's also a hotly contested thing in Starfleet Genesis. They just made this planet, and, and it and it clearly is a major issue with them. So he's got to check in. Wasn't so, it okay. in the um, original outline that that uh, that they'd done that it was more of a situation, like more ships, yes. more? 
Yeah, in Return to Genesis. Yeah, the Romulans right, were right, actually Return mining dilithium on it. But it was they allude to the fact that this is a galactic controversy, and yet this, and and yet they just exploded the H bomb pretty much, and there are no other ships there except for this tiny little science vessel that the is minnow. vulnerable. The minnow, the SS Minnow, is the ship that we sent <laughs> out to the uh, uh, to, to to watch the uh, the Trinity test. Yeah, I think that's my my biggest issue with it is like that's the guy that you're you're putting in charge there. Um, it, I totally it, it, believe the Martinet Captain Styles in command of the Excelsior, and he's got his swagger yeah. stick, and it's like it's all about the post, <laughs> and it's all about that shit. I find that very funny, and I dig it. But uh, but again, it opens up the question: is uh, that is there no one else competent in Starfleet other than Kirk and his crew? And and that's the big question because I I like to think Hello. that the, that anyone who is capable of commanding a starship has at least a modicum of ability. And okay, to be fair, Darren, in the original series, anytime we ever met the captain of another ship, yeah. they were crazy, maniacal, yeah. or <laughs> their their body had been taken over. Oh, not not <laughs> not Commodore Wesley. Well, Commodore Wesley was fine, and and uh, all the the captains of the uh, uh, ships in the war games with the M five. Uh, they didn't they do so were, hot, man. <laughs> yeah, because they were put up against uh, an insane computer guy. Okay. Uh, Kevin, I want to ask you because you know everyone's going to say, yeah, but Star Trek Three is great because it's stealing the Enterprise, right? I think everyone agrees stealing the Enterprise, but I think what Ashley was talking about is this first act. Where they're coming home, they're depressed. Uh, Spock is dead. D. Kelly is sitting around speaking in tongues. I, I love and- that. I, I I love that opening. I think I think uh, the notion of taking your time with the characters that you love. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't underrate that. And again, picking up from where it from where it from where it ended. And I think the brilliance of putting Spock's soul into McCoy is so cool. Like I remember being freaked out as a kid when you could hear Spock and then with those, how did McCoy do those crazy, freaky, crazy eyes coming out of the shadow? (laughs) So good. Uh, I, I, I thought I was totally into that and coming back into the, uh, into the, uh, uh, dock and seeing the, and seeing, uh, I want to hang out in that lounge where you yeah. sit there on those yeah. comfy chairs as the as an enterprise. We call it the blue the it. blue bayou. We call it the blue I, bayou because I, I, exactly right. 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 come in. I would yeah. love that. Yeah. And, you you, and you, you have it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It's the Club Thirty Three of, uh, of 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 Starfleet. Uh, so um, l- let me ask you this because obviously that's. Uh, you know, you 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 mentioned earlier the bar scene, which is clearly influenced by Star Wars. Now, uh, without getting into the minutia, you know, it's a shame that Charles Charles Carell couldn't smoke it up because uh, because uh, they were using uh, ILM opticals, and at the time, you you couldn't do it with a lot of smoke. They couldn't do that stupid little World War One fire game, so it's really brightly lit. But you know, Terry, you were saying you really are a big fan of Alan Miller's performance. That joke was. Created on the day, the ears thing when they saw the makeup. It wasn't ad lib, but I think Hart Bennett threw it at them on the day, which is a great gag. Great um, what do you think of that whole Star Wars cantina? I, it's funny. I, I, I my mind never goes to, to Star Wars big, at, at all on it. I mean, I understand it, it's easy to do. I'm just so focused on DeForest Kelly. Like I, I 
Bones is my favorite of all Star Trek characters. And he's so good. And then watching him try and charter a ship and not know how to do it. And I love the relationship with the waitress. She's like, oh, it's not your usual poison. And him do it like, he's I didn't know how to For me, uh, it's to go here. Yeah, exactly. And flirted with her. Who knows? Like, so it was a delivery system for DeForest Kelly for me. So I, I love it. Um, and that guy is great. The makeup on that guy is great. That, the, that alien with the feathery thing and. I mean, it, Star, it, I always thought it was Star Wars. I always thought it was the lesser, the lesser cantina, uh, for sure, and going to and going to to book a ship. Uh, but I did love it. I did love that the weird fish looking backwards guy who talked like I was like, oh, he's talking like Yoda. I guess right. that's yeah. And the uh, but what I really love is the nefariousness of the Starfleet security officer. Yeah, with the little and when and when he starts to talk, when McCoy's voice is going up too loud, and and you realize, uh, uh, Starfleet is not all which which the shows and the movies then really really maybe too much so delve into. To your point of finding a a decent captain, Starfleet is often the most corrupt place around um, uh, in some storylines. But I like that. That to me was one of the first times that you realized, oh, they're. A security guy's going to muscle McCoy out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually always thought that, and, I, and again, this is probably something we debated in, in, in the lunchroom, that they were following him. That that guy just oh, yeah. didn't happen to be there. But that the notion that he went home and, and was like recuperating, Kirk tells you, and then that that guy was kind of on him. Yeah, well, sure. he side him the second he walks in. That, guy, yeah. that guy's yeah. clocking bones right away. Also, not Bob Fletcher's finest moment. That waitress's outfit looks like something out of Buck Rogers, uh, circa nineteen. In the makeup, okay. in the makeup, there are a few things in the movie that do scream. Period. What I'm so impressed about with Wrath of Khan or Empire Strikes Back are these great classic movies of the early '80s that completely hold up. And if you see anything else that came out in that time, contemporary films that came out in that time period, you go, "Oh my God, this is yeah. this feels like a trillion years ago." And most Trek holds up for me. She, she <laughs> felt out of she felt of the of the period and not a yeah. in not a twenty third century way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought um, a lot of the costuming in general was kind of a disaster. Yeah. Like once you're outside of uniform land. Oh, Carrie, I'm I'm dying to ask you. Like, so oh, wait, uh, well, we should talk about Kirk's, Kirk's leather jacket's amazing. Okay, oh, you know yeah, what? I would maybe wear that jacket. Great. It's just I don't know about the rest of the ensemble. Yes. I would no, definitely not wear the freaking outfit. Come on, he had like an overcoat situation. I yeah, boy's cool. outfit is cool. I don't know how many yeah. layers are going on with that, but it's, it's many cool. layers. It's it took like, him a while to get dressed, but it was cold outside. It's very cold in space. <laughs> it's Chekhov. That's the most. Yeah. Flesh. Yes. Yeah, what is so happening gross. there? Did he dress himself in the dark? What was what was going on? He thought it was a good idea. Well, yeah, look, I, I mean, the, the, real, the story is that Bob Fletcher was trying to take something from character for each of them. So right. for Sulu, you know, he went for like a kind of samurai with the cape and everything like that. And for Kirk, you know, he did. Oh, and, no, but that was what he said. He Each one was derived from a character. The problem is Chekhov had no character, right? Right. So it's like, he's what just is a he Russian guy. So he right. says, I'll make him like a Russian I, poet. I did think it was very interesting that they chose for Kirk's kind of hero outfit for the movie, exact same colors, meaning same sort of idea sure. yeah, as yeah. the uniform that we love, but but obviously without any of the rank and the and the kind of you know the 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 fan thing and because his loungewear when they're all over for a drink, 
I don't know that the movie would have been the same or you would have been able to take him seriously with that sort of jacket, whatever that zip up was, the right. blue and white. Yeah. But he was in his like his Russian mobster tracksuit. Yeah, it was like a tracksuit. Blue jumper. Yeah. 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 Track but, but even Sulu, Sulu's got that Serpico leather jacket yeah. thing. I like that. And all those carry through animals. all those carry through the voyage home, right? Yeah. Again, like what yeah. a what a choice. Because they yeah, didn't want to spend any more money. It's pretty that's it's pretty amazing. Well, look, a lot of people say, you know, your favorite trilogy is it Back to the Future, is it Indiana Jones and Star Wars? Uh, to me, I look at two, three, and four as kind of a perfect trilogy too, as well, I should say. It's a great trilogy. Did, did anybody name that? What is the name of that trilogy? You guys should coin a term. The Genesis. There is. It's called the Genesis. The Genesis the, trilogy. It, isn't it the Vonda McIntyre? She wrote those. <laughs> she adapted those three, right? And they're in like one set. No, I've heard it referred oh, to as the Genesis, the, the, the Genesis trilogy. The Genesis. I'm in for that. We can do it here. Uh, I mean, and it's interesting because it had never been right. planned. You know, you talk of obviously... Right. You know, cinematic universes, it had never been planned. You know, I, it, they went from movie to movie with no idea what the next movie would be. Um, you know, three, they, I mean, it got greenlit the day Star Trek II opened. Right. And Harv Bennett knew he had to bring back Leonard, but that was it, you know. And then for four, when they finished three, they had no idea what four was going to be until it was a success. So in that sense, they did a pretty good job of having it hold together and telling a coherent story, given that there was you know, certainly more than some other sequels, uh, trilogies, um, that uh, they were able to um, tell a coherent story and, 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 and you know, really holds together. Let me answer a question. If I, if I had heard, if I knew this, I've forgotten it. Spock saying remember in two, right, which we then see again in perfect video footage. He, right. They rented the DVD of the of, of yeah, Star Trek. They didn't even go to the Always a pet peeve. Always a pet peeve. But, but, so why did they shoot that in two? If Leonard was so adamant that he was out at that point, why did they shoot that? And did they know that would be their way back in? It you was a know? pickup. It was a pickup. They added it later because the movie was testing so well and um, they they knew that it was going to work, and Leonard was having a good time making right. two, and they had a good feeling. So it hadn't been filmed when they originally shot that scene, and they picked up, and they didn't know what they were going to do with it. They just needed something that gave them mm. uh, an in to explore it later, which is yeah. what they did. You know, obviously they added um, the, the shot of the tube on Genesis too, right? That was awesome. Yes, that, well, that, that, is, that, that was, was the last later. thing they shot. I knew so that was that later. like was that Nick's idea? Was it we don't no. know? No, oh, he, he didn't want to do it, he right? It. He didn't like that. He hated it. Yeah. Bob Sound went and shot the stuff in San Francisco Park because um in I Nick meant Martin to remember. Yeah, I know he didn't like the, the tube uh on yeah. the planet, but was that because that's such an interesting thing that you'd have to be like, shit, come up with something that we may use later that is so per like you couldn't watch the two movies together and not think it was on purpose. Well, because people were having such a good time with Wrath of Khan, but then it ends on such a bummer note that's, you know, Spock died. And so people were like, you know, love the movie, but then they were leaving the theater depressed. So they needed a hopeful something that would get people to feel like, oh, yeah, he's coming back. And that's why they had the, the tube on the planet so that there was this, it could end on a hopeful note as opposed to sort of this, oh, Spock's dead and he's never coming back. But um, you know what, though? I, I don't know that. I think you could have done Star Trek 2, never had, like, I don't know that you need to 
look at Star Trek Two in retrospect of Star Trek Three and go, the reason why there's hope and you kind of like it at the end is because you feel like Spock could come back. I, I think that those that those changes were ultimately good and that that feeling that there is hope and that, you know, there are always possibilities. I think that mm-hmm. works on its own merit. I think that runs on its own steam. Like Star Trek three didn't have to bring Spock back and it would not have changed the way that I felt at the end of Star Trek two, which is that, felt young. that bitter. Exactly. You do feel young. You do feel like that bittersweet, um, you know, you've lost something that's important, but there's something about it that it's not that it's okay. It's that, will be okay. And that seems Darren, to be the message of the movie. Isn't that the problem with the beginning of Star Trek 3? You got to a Star Trek 2 where everyone's feeling like, I feel young, he feels renewed, he's reconnected with Carol Marcus. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, he's discovered a son. He, and then and Star Trek 3. All that's thrown away. In, in well, Star what is he? I mean, yeah. You just expected the next day he was, you know, partying on. on no, but. Or like, but what, like. My basic premise is that. We needed some time to let the characters develop a bit after the loss of Spock. And I think that Star Trek Three happens too quickly and too easily to press that reset button. Now, Kevin, you would disagree with that because you like the fact that it literally happens hours after Star Trek Two ends. Is it hours or is it days? It days. It's probably hours. Days. It seem like days. But <laughs> by the book. Instead of hours. Yeah, it's days. I mean, because it's limping home. It's uh, limping and they've done the repairs. They talk about yeah. the repairs are complete. But David um, and Savick are on another, like, they've been on yeah, they, that they've already for a while. Gone. So yeah, that's true. It like but but I think that happens, that happens once they've gotten back, obviously. So, but I like, I buy that, that it's, uh, you know, it's been whatever it's been a day or a week, a couple of days or a week, and Spock is not there. And you're processing that, you're processing that loss. And as you get closer to home where you spend yeah. much of your time with him, going back to 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 Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna bubble up. And I love how mad Kirk is that somebody busted into yeah. into Spock's quarters. I was on the verge of obsessive behavior. I also think <laughs> that the film, what's interesting about it in that way is that it continues a lot of the thematic, some subtle, some less so ideas of two in terms of the age of the real characters, the actors, the characters, where they are in their careers, time passing, and this sense of being outmoded, which, you know, I think carries through the minute they get home and, and Cartwright's, I'm not Cartwright, um, uh, What's his name? Robert Hooks uh, is Admiral Morrow. Yeah, Morrow. Yeah. You know, oh, sorry, we're decommissioning the Enterprise. You're not, you know, we're 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 decommissioning the Enterprise, and there is no refit, and they're all going to go their separate ways. And even though one of my favorite moments in the movie is the little piece between Uhura and that that dude uh, in the transporter room, Mister Adventure, yes, Mister Adventure. It's it's so with Mister what? Mister Adventure. Yeah, yes, Mr. Where it's a great, you know, where he says, he, obviously she's there for the plan, but he says, you know, that maybe this is great for someone like you whose career is winding down. And they do this great cut to her, yeah. just flicking great. her eyes up. up at him. Yeah. And this, it was this whole kind of idea of these kind of generational, but also just the weight of the things that were um, on these characters and that everything, what Morrow says to him in the bar, you're, I mean, which I mean, the scene could have been a little bit better, but the idea that you know you're 
you know, careers always stood for rationality. Not and international not, chaos. Intellectual chaos. Intellectual I didn't think chaos. that was what I was like. I don't know what that uh, is. But that on. notion of you're going well, to throw it all away. Michelle Nichols is great in that scene. The guy... He looks kind of familiar, right? He's he's been in other he was in other things, but he feels like he's like in Revenge of the Nerds or something. Yeah, yeah. he's well, he's, he's, he's uh, <laughs> still yeah. there. But the Yeah, the great thing about it is that he later becomes an incompetent captain. So he continues that grand tradition. Right. I, I wanna ask you guys, but while we're on this, because Uhura in the novelization, Uhura stays behind <laughs> yeah. for a reason. She's there to foul up communications so nobody knows that the Enterprise has gotten yeah. away and they can't right. dispatch ship. That's all great. Do you feel that she's underserved? Yes. Uh, you know, she has a great scene in the Steel and the Enterprise, but they don't send her along with the guys. No, I remember going, why isn't she get why isn't she getting on the you can yeah. set and then get on the pad with yeah. them? <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. I also love when she goes, All my hopes. I love it. Yeah, it's sweet, but you know, she's basically, okay, just meet us at Vulcan and we'll see you it later. It would have been nice to see some of that, meaning I did like yeah. everybody. She's so good in the film and she's so good when they're all together. It, it is a bummer not to have her there. And then on the other hand, you, you know, you sort of realize the way the ship was set up in terms of what needed to happen, you know, it's sort of weirdly having less of them was more dire, more less of the crew. Yeah. It was more dire. And, but it would have been neat to see her, you know, continuing because there's a lot of things that, you know, they warn the, the Grissom that they're coming there, but no one else can kind of get there. It might have helped a little bit just to see her kind of doing that, fouling up communications for sort of, you know, scattering Starfleet's plans to go after them. I think that's another reason for all the goodwill this movie gets because it serves this, for lack of a better word, the seven dwarfs, the ensemble so well, you know, Sulu gets a great moment. Uh, Chekhov doesn't so much, but he had in the last movie, Uhura gets great moments. So all the supporting cast, Scotty gets great moments and they're they're all true to character, which is another reason I think that people really respond to this movie, much more so than Star Trek II, where Chekhov gets great stuff, but it's only because he's not on the Enterprise that he gets good stuff to do. I'm beginning to, what's bubbling up for me in this conversation, which I'm enjoying, is that the movie, this undeserving movie gets a pass only because of great scenes and right. great, <laughs> right, exactly. and great, great actors <laughs> and great use of the cinematography, That's all. emotion, the music, that great score. <laughs> but he just gets a pass. <laughs> I just want to say before, Mark, on that point, before we get too far away with it, I, I think it's very interesting when you read those reviews and the kind of contemporaneous accounts because I actually think, you know, we're that we miss the the time where subculture could be subculture and that there were things that didn't quite pierce the mainstream in the same way, which gave, uh, I mean, again, Star Wars was obviously it's a different thing, but Star Trek, and you know, we've talked about this before, part of what was always great about it was that it wasn't for everyone all the it's, time. And it that, feels more personal. It, but it, that it could be something for the people and all, all certainly all the fans that 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 kind of kept it alive um, in the sixties and seventies to make yeah. the motion picture, and then threading that needle of the movies, where have to having to basically be the first real TV serial experience to be trans in, in a big way to be translated yeah. into into cinematic form. That's really hard because you inherently have to give up certain things about which have always been the debate about these movies. They didn't do enough of what the show did. 
But on the other hand, it did the right thing we all wish we could do all the time, which is it just made it about the characters. Mm. And that simplified almost everything else around it, sometimes better than others. I mean, there's things obviously about Nick's direction that are incredible in two and, and, and writing in two. Um, but that part of what made this movie, even watching it again, was how it just leaned into all of them in their ways. And, and you mentioned DeForest. He's so good in the film and the idea of, you know, oh, this was his, that green blooded bastard. Yeah. You know, so he, he did, this was his revenge for all the arguments we've lost. Like that it's him is the one who has to hold the Katra that, right. that Kirk's basically has to throw away the entire, everything he stood for without even a batting an eye because he has to do it. But like all of those things are like, and then it has to destroy the Enterprise. Like as which by the way, I was rewatching the teaser. I forgot that they put the I know the fucking the shot of the ship blowing up being destroyed at the end of the in the trailer. It made me so mad. And in all made the commercials on and TV, Boy mad yeah. too. I remember that. I remember the that final voyage. Even the, you know, the notion that there was no internet back then, so things weren't as horrible as they are today. I'm I'm all I'm I'm a believer in that, but. People knew, even before the ads, right? People knew they were destroying the Enterprise and got mad. People knew that they were going to kill Spock and did a letter-writing campaign. So there were there were ways, I don't know if they were fanzines or fan clubs or just the conventions, there were ways that people figured things out and the small community would would get super upset about something. Those, those uh, leaks were tracked to a certain office at Paramount. Oh, uh, yes. I, I learned that on to the, uh, to the previous, <laughs> the previous yeah. uh, executive producer. I did um, learn that on this very <laughs> show. They came from Gene? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, I proved that, too, in um, Fifth Year Mission, because it had always been suspected, but uh, we got the, we, we, we got we the, got the lowdown for it. Yeah, it was really interesting. But you know, one of the things, one of the things that that went around when I was when I was, uh, you know, in the eighties and the early nineties, is the the even movies are good and the odd movies are bad. Right? That is what that was kind of, and even reviews would start to call that out around four, five, or six. And I I contend that even in my own head. Star Trek three gets gets maligned because yeah. of because it's an odd and the odds were bad. Uh, so three must not. And it, and yes, three is not as good as two or four. Um, but it is it is really, really a good movie. And I, I agree with you, Ashley. It is the when you cut to Savick uh, and uh, and Merrick and when you cut to that, if they had just shot. On location, if, oh they, if they had just shot oh, the Genesis yeah. planet on location, boom! Right, the quality goes up. Totally. I, I want to talk about right that, but first, I, I want to give Ashley a chance to respond, and, and then I want to talk about why they didn't shoot on location and how, to me, that is probably the the single worst decision that was made on this film. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the Seven Dwarfs um, and say, number one, I I would argue that until this film. These characters, with a few exceptions, right? Scotty certainly had some some great moments uh, in the original series. Uh, but for the most part, we don't think about the original series as being an ensemble show. It never was. It was a nope. three-hander, and these other guys were there. 
Um, and which is not to dismiss, you know, any of them at all. I love them. I have tremendous affection for all of those characters. Um, and, uh, and I think they're, they're all great. But if you look at where their great moments happen in Star Trek three, they all happen in the context of stealing the enterprise when they all have something to do. This is putting McCoy aside. They all have something to do in that sequence. And once you get outside of that, right, it's why I'm okay with Uhura. Like, we just wave goodbye to her. She did her job. She had her moment. It was a great moment. Now she's out. Because if I guarantee you guys, and you know I'm right in your heart of hearts, if you had shot all of the business with her screwing around with communications and there were no stakes to it and nothing happened because of it, you would have looked at the cut and gone, nope, we got to kill it because it doesn't actually add anything to this movie. It's nice to have and to sort of know that you did it and feel good, but like, but, and it maybe works in a novel, but I think it's, it actually takes away from one of the virtues of the film to say that, you know, we should have had more of her. Because if anything, once we are off to Genesis, we kind of lose, um, you know, the, the significance of the, of the seven dwarfs in that movie. Well, Sulu does eyeball the, uh, the cloak ship. I mean, he sees, that, he yeah, sees the yeah. bird of prey. I mean, they have stuff, but it's not like, it's not a great scene. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like, oh, okay, that's so character specific as opposed to, don't call me tiny. Which is terrific. a great example of the power of editing because, you know, the Steel in the Enterprise scene was originally cut up. It was intercut with a bunch of other stuff and it didn't work. It wasn't until they realized they needed to put the whole sequence together as one caper, as an Ocean's Eleven Mm. thing, that it suddenly comes alive. And obviously, I'm sure Horner's music also elevated it. What was it, uh, do you know, what was it intercut with? Just stuff that was I think the stuff on Genesis. On Genesis? Yeah. You know, it was the Terrence Malick cut. There were lots of you know shots. Because of God knows, I want to see more of them on Genesis. Because but that's actually a you actually group. make me think of something I'd never thought about before. That if you imagine the the room where whether it's the studio or or Art or everybody else going, wait, we got to make another one, but we can't have Spock in it. That they were making a Star Trek movie with. I mean, when you talk about how they all have stuff to do in a way that. You don't have Leonard. Like yeah. that must have been in in concept before you. You just what a weird thing to be like. Well, you have him on the one sheet with that. Uh, well, yes, light, but I just mean uh, in the film. Uh, given uh, what you're just saying about the way, they had. I love that. That it's all that it's that the that it's Star Trek is basically Kirk and Spock, and then Bones sort of as the third part of it, yeah. and they're both kind of one is out completely, and one is kind of you know out of it. Well, it almost was more yeah. because in the original draft. Kirk was under house arrest and Sulu was like putting everybody together and you know Bill was not having that he's like <laughs> okay, I want to talk about that one too man because well, really, look, yeah. I, I get the whole we come home and you know we're all you know sad and all that shit because you know what you would be sad like mourning is a process it's all that good shit but I feel like the what happens in that movie is it starts off with everything is bad news and then they get the news about Spock, and it doesn't really change the trajectory of of anything. It's not really good news. It's just more like, oh, you're a dick, so it's more bad news. As opposed to, you know, and I and I think this is kind of to Darren's point that starting that movie in a place where people felt like they they could get on with their lives, right? That there were possibilities, that things could be okay that they weren't coming back and they're not being mothballed and they're not being retired and not everything is going to shit. 
And you'd think things are going to be okay. And then Sarek shows up, right. right? And he says, hey, guess what? I've got some really bad news. You have unfinished business back there. And now you have to make a choice. Yeah. I feel like the energy would have been different at the top. And I would feel different about that film. And oh. that suddenly these characters are being asked oh. to make a choice and make a sacrifice. Didn't you, you just think that's good news? Sorry, go ahead, uh, Terry. I, cut you off. I was going to say that that's kind of Avengers Endgame, right? They all move on. You spend the first, the beginning of it moving on, and mm -hmm. then suddenly there's a time travel opportunity. So it's kind of that. That's why I wonder, like, for me, is that's, I think it's, I think it's perfect as is. I think that the fact that you have, you're being decommissioned, the ship is done, you're out, you have this avalanche uh, of, of, of no's, and then it's now, but we have to go. I think probably what you needed, and maybe this is what they're implying with the, the, the sort of it being a galactic controversy, is a time clock. You know, mm -hmm. because if you say it was four years later, right? Spock's tube has just been on that planet, I guess, for five years. Like, could now it, he's eighty years old. Well, right. But could, <laughs> it, could it, would, it, would he be able to be regenerated? You know. But I, I understand the the move on thing. I Look, just think it's a different movie. Once it's once you start bringing magic into the equation, which Trek Three does. Um, you can make up anything. We call it to, Vulcan mysticism. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's correct. Um, <laughs> Star, Trek, Star Trek's always had that, though. No, it hasn't. It's it, there's it mind melds. Mind yeah, melds can be different. Mind melds can be sort of explained really? by you know contact and uh, and energy transference uh, between mm. uh, the Vulcans with their highly evolved uh, uh, you know. The whole, know, the, the whole notion of the Katra you're, you're, you're calling that, magic? Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. No, absolutely not, Jim. You're my best officer. But I am Commander Starfleet, so I don't break rules. Don't quote rules to me. I'm talking about loyalty and sacrifice. One man who's died for us. Another with deep emotional problems. Now, wait a minute. This business about Spock and McCoy... Honestly, I never understood Vulcan mysticism. You don't have to believe. I'm not even sure that I believe. But if there's even a chance that Spock has an eternal soul, then it's my responsibility. I don't want to go down it. that rabbit hole too far because we dealt with there it. There is no rabbit hole. They have no, the well, ability in the, in, to in the Gene Roddenberry notes episode. Because Gene Roddenberry, if you remember, Steve, eviscerates the Vulcan mumbo-jumbo uh, and when we did the Gene Ronberry's notes about this to yes. Harv, and, and this is just a very short version. He says, I can't believe there have been many planet Genesis effects around before, certainly even fewer involving a Vulcan. And this can hardly avoid uh, being a very special thing. Hey, here's another victim and his mindless body. So let's climb to the, the steps to the temple on an old Mount Watson again and put his uh, consciousness back in his body. I mean, he's not wrong. You kind of have to go with it. Uh, or not, and I think you know we went with it. But yeah, Gene's right in saying this is like potentially a step too far for Vulcan, you know, mysticism. The the, the idea of the Catra and this ritual. I mean, they were people were switching bodies and consciousness in every other episode yeah, of, of, the, of the original exactly. series. Not the good Janice Lester. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that would have been a real kick in the not pants. A good twist ending. You find out that it's not Spock in there. Right. It's, uh, it's Janice <laughs> Lester. Oh, By the way, shit. Gene had our backs on this thing about the Grissom, too, because one of my favorite notes of his, and then I uh, was, uh, when are you going to stop 
depicting Kirk's beloved Starfleet as a Pirates of Penzance Admiralty, you know, which yeah. is also another. What do you really have, Mark? What? How do you have this? You have those are well, jeans. We oh, have a whole real. episode on his notes. That's yeah. a great episode. That might have been the first full episode I listened to <laughs> because it was yeah, really great. And, the, and those are his, what, his letters to Harv, or, or like yeah, it's his notes to Harv. It's Harv notes back, which basically entailed no, 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 and uh, the studio notes PTSD, as well. Terry. Um, <laughs> but now the studio actually had pretty good notes. This team, they did. The studio yeah. did. Gene didn't. Well, no, well, you keep saying Gene that Gene's did. notes actually were pretty damn good for most of them. Some of them yeah. were ludicrous, but uh, well, you know. What were the studio notes that were good, that were good that helped? You got to listen to the episode because I can't recount it uh, here, uh, nor do I remember. Is it, is uh, it episode one ninety two? Just point me. They'll get back to you. Like, let, I, I let's, let's, let's talk about let's talk Bruce, about this Bruce. movie because one thing you know, Mister Back to the Future fan uh, is, uh, and as we all are, of course, uh, is but not all of us have a DeLorean. Um, Christopher uh, Lloyd now. The original hope to cast this role had been Edward James almost for Crooge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up being a Christopher Lloyd. Um, what do you think of his performance? What do you, how would the movie well, have can changed? Can I just ask you before you get been, into that? What happened with almost? With, did he pass or he just. What? No. Uh, um, uh, that was, um, I think it was Leonard's idea and Harv didn't like it. And then they came up with the Christopher Lloyd idea. And Leonard liked that idea, and so they made the offer yeah. to Christopher Lloyd. Uh, because people forget, you know, it's sort of like now people don't remember Ricardo was better known for Fantasy Island at the time, and it was really weird seeing him as Khan. It's the same thing with Christopher Lloyd. People forget he was on Taxi every week yeah. back then, yeah. and yeah. people were used to seeing him as Reverend Jim. I actually think the performance is better now than it was then because of the whole taxi of it all. But what did you guys think of the depiction of the Klingons, which were originally going to be the Romulans, and, you know, uh, Christopher Lloyd? Uh, Terry, I'll start with you because, you know, we'll go back to the future. I I obviously love it. I love Christopher Lloyd. I think he's a great villain. I mean, he was the villain in uh, Lone Ranger. Remember remember that old? Oh, yes. Butch Cavendish. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) He was. uh, In in the legend of the Lone Ranger? Yeah. Wow, there's deep cut. Yeah. Bill Fraker directed that. The I one feel like Deck 78 coming on. Wow. <laughs> okay. the, um, I love a larger than life Star Trek going. You know, you just had Khan who's chewing it up. Uh, and I feel like he chews it up, but he's also, he's also, what I felt this time watching it is he's a fucking psycho. He's clearly not, he's already in trouble with the, with the, he's like a rogue Klingon. Because right. he's talking about how the Klingons are negotiating peace, and he's like, "I'm not for that." Yeah. Uh, so he's he's clearly on his own. Um, he's charismatic. I like his little. I give you two minutes for you and your gallant crew. You know, he's insane. he's got a dog. No, because you wish it. Like I can. There's so many exhilarating, Lord isn't it? That I use in my daily life uh, <laughs> from this movie. Get out of there! Go. That's so, one of the best lines. That that line would not have been as good if anyone else had played that part. Right. Yeah. And that, Edward, that alone Edward, makes it, Edward, it, makes Edward, it J- Edward James almost would have said, get out of there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have been it. Uh, I, so I, I, I think he's amazing and, 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 and hateable. And I love the fight, even the cheese ball fight on Genesis with, with him. And I have had... And I, like so, I, I find also 
I think it sort of set the tone for Klingons, actually, all the way through next gen. Certainly with the Neela, the, the, the bird. The look of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and the feeling of, I like, I even like the, the, that dog thing that he's, he's it's, you're very charitable. I, I, I just, I, I look again, it's, you have, you know, I, I was nine. It's, it's, it's one of those things that I'm always going to love. Is it o- over the top? Is it, che- yes. Is it a little cheesy? Yes. But I think it's perfect for, for what this needed to be. I like the three of them. And I like the three of the, the Klingons. And I like the, obviously the lead up, which I'm sure we'll get to, to the countdown, which is one of the greatest sequences in any movie, certainly any Star Trek movie. Uh, and it, and it's Christopher Lloyd and it's John Larroquette. And you guys know who the third, third guy is? No, I don't, don't remember, don't no. remember him. So when I, when I first uh, came to Los Angeles many, many years ago, and I was, I was interned at a company and the woman I worked directly for when I, I was sort of a second assistant and the first assistant was a woman named Kathy Liska, who, uh, who was great. She was married to, and is still married to a man named Steve Liska, who's very cool and is that third Klingon. Wow. She was one of the first sort of celebrities that I'd ever met or seen. I, just, I couldn't believe it because she was also a Star Trek fan. So we could sort of talk about Trek and it's, Came up. Oh, by the way, my husband is, uh, and he has a name. I can't remember his name in the he's, movie. He's the one that says, uh, "Great power to control, dominate." Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then says, the, the, "You know, only the computer is speaking." Right. Yeah. What does it say? Sorry. What does um, it say? This is an Atari cool. twenty six hundred in nineteen eighty three. Kevin, that's all. That's it so says your shit that's out really, of luck. What? That's a great story. That's when they needed Mike Akuda desperately. If only Mike Akuda was a Mike is on the movie, Mike. But he didn't do those graphics because they're awful. Well, I, I mean, I hate to penalize a movie, you know, for 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 not having good computer graphics because it's 1983. But look at the Genesis wave; that's brilliant, right? You uh, know, it's nice they play animation in its entirety. I do like that the destruct code is uh, consistent with uh, the original series. With Let That Be Your Last Battlefield? So great. Destruct zero, zero, destruct zero? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Well, I I do remember this is one crystal memory I do have coming out of the movie thinking, not to paraphrase baseballs, that's the kind of code an idiot would have in his luggage. Like, I was just like, wait a minute, that's it? Like, you can just (laughs) just password one, two, three, four. I love that it takes three officers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you need two keys to to turn do the thing. I, I, I always love that. It takes three to make a thing go right. Well, I want to ask you guys because, you know, potentially Genesis is a real, you know, Star Trek always did allegory in an interesting way. And Genesis was a chance to deal with, like, potentially nuclear proliferation. And, of course, to have this character of Carol Marcus. And when Ashley was speaking earlier and talking about when it had been interesting to see maybe their life and then suddenly Sarek emerges into this life. I mean, had we seen Kirk with Carol Marcus and the the son and 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 seen the life that could yeah, have been that would have been to bring her back for just now. It wasn't. I mean Harv insisted right. the studio wanted her back and Harv was the one who didn't want to bring her back because he needed this plot where David cheated. Basically, right. the Kobayashi brother right. did the same thing right. as her, where he put the proto matter in the mix because he had to have this thing go wrong. And he was afraid, was like, she complicit? How would you explain it? He couldn't figure it out, you know, because, I mean, Harv, for, for all that he did right, was still very mired in a TV way of thinking, in an 80s TV way of thinking. 
And um, I actually think it's okay. I mean, yeah, it, it's I part of what I, I, whether that would have been an issue or not, I don't really know. But the the simplicity of it, not just the meaning, your mileage may vary in terms of whether you like picking it up, you know, a few days later or not. I thought it was pretty good, but just how much they, how much, like I said, the ceiling and doesn't even have, it happens in minute 40 something. And yet it's still a pretty streamlined set of events that pre, that keep very close to the characters and less to the sort of situation. Everything is about either how to, either Spock's loss or how to get to Spock. And I think that is, is really good, simple storytelling. And I think that's one of its strengths, looking at it again and kind of going, you know, not how would we do it today, but just, but just it's really character focused, which is all you can really ask for when you are making a movie where A, you have to economize and figure out what new environments look like and whether you're only going to use once and all that. You don't, very little of it's on the bridge and, and you just, I think, want to be in their, in their world and, and kind of what's going on with them. But you, I just, I didn't get to say anything about the Klingons. I want to say one thing, which is Maltz. Uh, Sorry. I was like, I love that he's just like, God, you said you would kill me. I lied. That I was like, oh man, I wonder, I wonder what happened to that guy. Yeah, he right. carries the best idea of all, which he just pitched me before the show, which is, wouldn't it have been great if he had to take them uh, in the vertebrae into Star Trek Four and like to Earth? Right. He's just along for the ride. Like you know, like if it was a, if the four hour version is he comes along, gets free, ends up in San Francisco, like does the thing. <laughs> exploring a lot of you know, I love yes. everything about that. <laughs> I just like that they had to take Vulcans are like, we're not taking them. Like what you can't right. yeah. leave them here. You're not leaving a rogue Klingon here. And he's like, <laughs> all right. And then it's, and then the guys are like, I thought you were taking me to you know. He's like, Well, we're going to take you to the past. You got the whole sitcom planned out. This is it's, this is it's he did. I always adventures thought, on I, Earth. I always thought he was just in the in the in this brig on the and whole time. Right? They leave <laughs> him out in the cargo hold for to, that's how you do. That's what you do. He's at the bottom when of the San Francisco <laughs> Bay. Yeah, when, <laughs> when, when they're crashed in the bay, you just cut to the to the brig, and he's just sitting there looking around. <laughs> 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 they're they're out there splashing each other, having yeah. fun. And he's drowning to death. Terry, <laughs> when you put the bird of prey into the museum, they they found they dedicated found the, the, body. Oh, the dead yeah. Klingon, the little dead great. Klingon skeleton. <laughs> I, I, Steve, you, you talk about this being very simplistic storytelling, and I think that is part of. I didn't problem. say simplistic; I said streamlined and simple. <laughs> my problem is this very simply simplistic. simplistic, streamlined storytelling um, that. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, Harv had a problem that he had to resolve, which is we got to bring back Spock by the end of the movie. And, you know, it's a fairly elegant solution, but there's not a lot but of But he had to there. throw David under the bus to do it. Well, yeah, let's, well, let's talk about that because, of course, David cheated, you know, and, you know, he couldn't be innocent in Harv's opinion. He had to have done something that warranted being killed. Right. He, you know, and I'm not sure that he ne needed to earn his death. Because it would have been tragic nonetheless. And well, that know, he deserved he, to die. I don't think that's it. But, no, but it's it's more like but, I think taking the the curse off of it a little bit. Right. Well, that's um, what he but, that's I mean, what and his, and his final his final heroic act of saving the other two uh, yes. is is a good moment. It but is a good moment. It's, but it's much, led up it's led up again by I'm just saying the sound of him being punctured by the oh, knife. Yeah. Bothered me since 1984. It's like it's like a 
you're a burst or something. I, it's always bothering. They must have had Christopher Lee as a technical consultant. But it's also very Hitchcocky in the way he shoots it, where he has in the yeah. foreground the the plant. You can't see it. You only see the knife go up. Yeah. You don't see it make contact. It's 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 well. It's a reset. It's it's um, it's, it's well done. How now, much so- better is that that entire scene, that entire sequence, if BB Besh is is in it, if she is helping to drive that, if there's actual conflict happening on that planet between mother and son and son who fuck something up and like create it, help to create this entire yeah. problem. I mean, how much more, I mean, and you also have somebody who has real charisma in those scenes. It's so a different it, movie. I mean, then you got to watch a movie. mother yeah. watch her son die and then right? doing that scene. But, but this yeah, is but what she okay always to wanted to a, avoid by keeping her away from Kirk. That's right. right. But it's okay so to have go. a father I mean, it, watch his son die. Yeah, yeah, but that he, okay? you know, he knew him, really he didn't know. Was, you know what I mean? Like, it, you could get away with, he's going to fall. He was a deadbeat dad, so he didn't care anyway. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I confess it's the oh, one one of the things that I, that I as shocking as it, as it was and is, and maybe it slightly, you know, kind of compounds by metrics, uh, metric, uh, merit metrics. Merit, metric. Merit, yeah. That's what we call metric. metric. Um, you know, it isn't necessarily the most, you know, charismatic, uh, that the way in which that all unfolds uh, in terms of sacrifice. Yeah, sure. He does kind of throw himself in the way of the knife, so to speak, and is the one that dies. I, there's a part of me that always sort of wished that if, if the story was about his, um, fault, you know, sort of his, his uh, mistakes made in the creation of Genesis, which was billed as this, you know, life changing invention that it some way be a sacrifice that was more about either all of them or like he dies with the planet or something, you know, something right. where right. it was a more, cause I, again, it's not something that was set. It couldn't have been obviously set up in two that, that this thing, you know, cause it wouldn't have fit there necessarily. It should but be a more thematic relationship. You're halfway through, and you're just like, okay, yeah, he protomatter, okay, it was unstable, which, because we're not feeling that good about the Genesis planet at all in this movie, so it's not really that much of a, a loss in a way, because you're not like, this is the new thing that we're hiding, so it was sort of, how do we get, how do we kill him, you know, how do we get so, rid of him in a way that's... Though cactus farmers the, were very excited by it. The what? The cactus farmers. Oh, he's talking about the matte painting of the cactuses. Which brings us back to Kevin's point earlier that why did they not shoot this on location? This is an example where I think they needed to go to the mattresses. Obviously, it was a budgetary decision, but Harv needed to fight. But again, coming from TV, of course we'll do it on a soundstage. We'll be fine. And he needed to fight to go to Hawaii like the DP was begging them. Now, they said, well, we had to have all these when the planet destructs, we had to do all these trap doors and be able to build under the stage and, you know, do all these explosions. So it made it very difficult to go on location. But, you know, it's not 1968 anymore. And it's like they, the film would be so well served by going on location uh, for the Genesis planet. It, it would have just helped enormously. And it could have opened up the movie. And, it and would, then you could have... You could have gone on the stages after the the lighting change mm-hmm. at night, and that would have been completely fine. Yep. There. Alas. Harder to control, Alas. I guess Alas. you'd say, yeah. too, is that it's not just the cost of going, but I imagine the conversation was, given how much has to happen, both in terms of the, you know, the switching from, you know, environmental zones, and then when things start to go right. south, for the planet itself and things, how much they would have had to have created 
wherever they were. I don't know. I mean, yes, I was. Uh, You'd have to make it snow in Hawaii. We would have had an entirely different feel, and actually but, would have felt after two, which was just basically the cave, um, all created on stage. That it would have really, you know, been open it up. Yeah. Well, the mm -hmm. cave in Star Trek Two should have been the impetus for them to go on location for Star Trek Three. Yeah, all they had to do was look back at Star Trek Two and see how bad that uh, set and the matte painting was. There was one thing in Star Trek Two that really? just I love you know, it. Yeah, I cook. Yeah. Uh, well, no, yeah. the reveal is fine, but all, you know the, the the stuff with the waterfall and all that yeah. is the, terrible. And the it the, beer, them the beer sign waterfall uh, left a lot. To yeah, be but that was supposed to be a fake environment, right? I mean, it was it was a constructed environment. It, it didn't have a sky, right? It's right. in the cave. Right. So I but sort it of has a sun. Oh, I forgot this. <laughs> this has a lot of really expensive lighting. Yes, yeah. lights. <laughs> I mean, look, the budget, the budget was understandably extremely tight. But at yeah. the same time, you know, they were able to re reuse a lot from Star Trek Two, including a lot of the costumes, um, and you know, a lot Except of the props. For Chekhov. Except for Chekhov, right? Um, and it just is like you know, you always make that one big decision, and you're going to go. You know, and this would have been the this, this would have been the decision to make, which was you know to go to go on location. But and I obviously, believe. being being honest with a new director who was inexperienced, they wanted to have as much control as they could possibly have, and shooting on a stage makes that happen. Can I ask you a question? Uh, well, I guess all of you, but but it would probably be you, Mark. It's true that the uh, I'm pretty sure it is, but I just want to ask that Sulu was meant to be promoted to captain and was meant to get. It's the, in the novelization, I think, like that he's like it. It was shot. He deferred to to. Was it in this one or was it in? No, it was in, in Star Trek Two. Star Trek Two was shot. It's a right. terrible scene. Takei says that Shatner intentionally undermined, uh, tanked the scene, which is not what happened. If you've seen the footage, it's it's just not a good scene, and it was superfluous and unnecessary, and Where's slowed down the pace of the movie. And there was no reason to include it. It didn't buy them anything. And, the footage is uh, that there was there, nothing in the novelization for three there, about yeah, Sulu. There getting, might have been. There is. I okay. mean, it's it's in the novelization for sure that he's going to that he's up for Excelsior, or at least not up for Excelsior, but, but that he loved it and was up for being yeah. captain. She's supposed right. to have trans warp drive. <laughs> my yeah, he's in it. Wheel should be a wagon. I mean, I haven't read the novelization since I'm 14, so I can't tell you one way or the other. Oh, um, who's the Trek first now? same as it ever was have you have you guys ever spoke speaking of the of the uh of the klingons i'm realizing one of my affinity for the for that bridge and for those klingons is related to my you know 12 year old when i was 12 years old taking a trip to universal studios hollywood have you ever spoken about the star trek adventure on this show where you we've, we've mentioned it. Yeah. We haven't really gone in deep because it's one of those things that your memories of it are better than what it was. Oh, for sure. But but it was right. You would go onto the set. You would recreate a scene. Right. The scene where he shoots the guy for blowing up the Grissom. Uh, and and I was a volunteer. And you go backstage and you and you put your little Klingon hat on. Right forehead and they teach you that when you get shot to fling it back right. and so it sort of falls flies off your head 
And then the audience laughs because they think it was a mistake. It was early, early lessons that everything is fake. Everything right. is everything is set up in the business. Forget all you know. Exactly. <laughs> and you would you could buy a, a video cassette. A video, of it I was just going to ask you. You had this video cassette, which is now unfortunately lost, of twelve-year-old me on this oh, oh, on this man. bridge with a with a, a Klingon forehead flying flying away. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I got in the thing. I have the VHS from what, but I was on Starfleet. I wasn't one of the Klingons. I was one of the the crew that they built up on stage <laughs> to do. And you get beamed too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Snotty beamed me twice last night. It was fantastic. Easy. <laughs> I don't know if that VHS uh, still works because I haven't looked. Nope. But I have it. <laughs> How long was that there? Dude, I had a. It was like a, a few years. And a not hat from not it. Many yeah. years. Yeah. It's where Shrek's Big Adventure was yep. and now it's uh I think Puss in Boots or but it, it was Oops. there for many years at the park. Yep. Um not as many years as the six million dollar man tunnel, which is now King Kong, <laughs> but uh that was that was and then the, the Battle of Galactica. But it was there for a long, long time. Um of the Klingons again, one other small thing that I noticed just as you were talking about it. Why this, Steve, you didn't this, go on this ride at Universal? You can't talk I, about I it. I didn't. I didn't get California until <laughs> much later. But um, go ahead. We didn't have it in New Jersey, sadly, but uh, I did not notice this before, but noticed it this time. First, I always loved that the film, you know, when the Klingons were by themselves, they were speaking Klingon and it was subtitled. And you did not have the Hunt for October moment where, you know, you sort of transition for the movie. And then it was very clear that when he's with humans, when they were, you know, were talking to Kirk or whatever, he's totally comfortable speaking English. But right. there is a point in the movie, and I think it's right around the the um, the self destruct sequence where they stop speaking Klingon on the ship, yeah. right. and so they're just speaking English to each other. And I didn't. I was like, oh, I guess at that point you don't really think about the logic of that. But but they just stopped. But I was always so impressed that they had let, you know let the gag go on for so long, and that those actors had to memorize you know all of that Klingon. Um, and and use it for comedic effect, and use it for you know a lucky shot, sir. And he's just anyway. It's just that then it that it stops. I thought that was so interesting. I I love the fact that Mark Okren came up with an entire language that actually Great. worked. Of course, now it, it led to for years later fans standing around barking at each other in Klingon, which is enough to make me want to choke a kitten sometimes. But I love that he did it. Um, and uh, when I was in college, I took a linguistics class. We had this whole thing uh, just about inventing languages and invented languages like Klingon. And I was like, so Klingon is a subject-object-verb construction. And it's just all these things. There's no infinitive to be, which made things complicated in mm -hmm. Star Trek VI when you've got to you know, quote Shakespeare. So I just, I actually, that's one of the things from uh, Star Trek Three that I really appreciate in terms of the world building is they came up with a whole freaking language just, for no reason, except for Christopher a, Lloyd to say stuff. A quick shout out uh, for the Klingon language in Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was actually made up by Jimmy Doohan. Hmm. Um, yeah, just they, making up words. They cut, the, they cut this out of our uh, commentary on Trek One uh, when we did it years ago. Um, but Jimmy Doohan actually came up with those lines, and he is uh, he is dubbing uh, those Klingons. Wow! Oh, and it's it's amazing. The, he did an amazing job. Yeah. Since since we all watched the movie, presumably again recently, I want to ask each of you. You know, I'm going to ask you what 
you liked more about it, what you liked less about it, um, and you know, sort of a close, like a closing remark. Uh, but before I do that, I want to read the last of Janet Maslin's wrap-up from her <laughs> review, where she says, The Star Trek saga remains a television series at heart, even in its widescreen incarnations. For all the fancy effects and sprawling panoramas, the scale remains small. The disadvantage to this is certain visual blandness, even tackiness, to the story's more grandiose settings is well outweighed by the intimacy that exists among Enterprise crew members and by their seriousness and avidity about what seemed to be the silliest minutiae, a blinking sign, for instance, that reads, life form, life form, while scanning the Genesis <laughs> planet. That's what longtime Trekkies love about this series, and it's still here, a little the worse for wear, but mostly untarnished. And in a way, Terry, is that a lesson for people making Star Trek today? It's all about the characters, isn't it? I think it's a lesson for everything, right? I mean, if, if, it, doesn't, if it doesn't work emotionally you're not connecting to any of these things then it's not it's not going i think maybe that's probably the major criticism with motion picture is it's just not a very emotional film um don't and, tell darren that at all no it's no I, mean, I, I, all. I love it now let me and I say that with a caveat and i love it like i'll put it on right now if you come come on over we'll do it but <laughs> watch um, it with the sound off or watch it score only is there a mode can you do that yeah. there yeah, is actually 4k and just there is on the 4K. only that yeah, I would but do. look, look, yeah. I I agree with all of these statements on the released version of the film. Is it on this one? Absolutely. Yeah, I, yes, yes, it is. Just, you know, for yes, years and years, uh, I would say everyone maligned Star Trek V for good reason. Right. But push comes to shove, I would take five any day of the week over one because of the characters, because they sing Row, 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 You Boat around a... Around a uh, yeah. Around a campfire because they eat marshmallows. Uh, because Kirk says, "What does God need with a starship?" Yeah, yeah. Have you have you watched the 4K version of Motion Picture? Yes, and the director's cut, and it was much better. It was much better than I remembered. But it, but I do not care about about. Uh, uh, you don't care about Spock coming to terms. You don't care about Spock coming I, to I like terms that. with I was, his I was human very half. surprised at that. I was very surprised yeah. at that. I was like, oh wait. There's, yeah. There actually was a character moment in this in this movie. There absolutely, but is. the amount of time spent on the two characters that were not the two yeah. characters that I care about. Here it comes now, Con. Going at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I sense another episode time. in the offing. Yeah, this we're is all, like this is like the twelfth round. This is we're getting. We're all friends here in the final. This is like frontier. when Rocky switches to Southpaw. You know, switches back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope he's getting mad. Isn't that the great thing about Star Trek is they don't, they, they really don't have to, like, you can have the hardcore science fiction motion picture, right? But, you know, for me, it's, it's always, it's about the crew as the family, uh, in every way. Um, so I totally get the Star Trek five thing. In fact, I think we should do another one of these called In Defense of Star Trek five. I'm right there. I, I was just going to say that because this is the 40th anniversary of Star Trek three It's the 35th anniversary of Star Trek five. And as you know, we've gone out of our way to champion that movie for a lot of the reasons that Star Trek three works. It's a, it's an episode. It's not a movie. It's a good episode. And you know, Star Trek five is unfairly maligned. Kevin, you cited so many of the things about it that work because the effects are so bad. And people can't look past that. It's the same thing. Great Star Trek score. Tri- it's got a great score. It's an amazing, yes. amazing score. Return of Goldsmith. 
And that that uh, Shaka Reed music. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. And uh, a busy man. And the song, I kind of, I even got into the... The, <laughs> the song for the Twisted yeah. Hearts? Aurora? Yeah, yeah. Is the Stairway to Heaven? Stairway to Heaven, yeah. No, the Moon is a Window to Heaven. The Stairway to Heaven is a window. Stairway to Heaven is a window. The guitar store. I heard Ralph Winter's interview uh, on on this show and thought it was thought it was great, and he obviously talked a lot about that and about yeah. Uh, yeah. the VFX decision on Five, which was uh, which was uh, a lesson. You know, I do want to say, uh, being a Trek fan my my whole life and a Star Wars fan my whole life, there's no difference to me. You can love yeah. two things, and I do absolutely. Uh, and and there was one name I would always see. On, on the Trek movies, it was Ralph Winter. I didn't know who he was, but I thought that name, like, the, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be like that. I just, I don't have to, nobody has to know who I am or, 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 or be up on a, on a stage necessarily. I just want to be able to be a part of things that are cool and that people like me respond to. And then when we were doing uh, X-Men 1, mm-hmm. they hired Ralph Winter. And I was like, holy mackerel. He's, and he's so... Nice and kind and low key. Yeah. I don't. Think, but it was. I couldn't believe that I was working with Ralph Winter on that uh, on that on that movie, and, and then got to and then got to know him. That's so. I have a similar experience because Ralph, a lot at that same time, made an overall deal with us at Fox, and I would do the same thing. I would go to his office and sit, and he'd be so generous with his time, and you know, talk, and he's such a good human, and still yeah. loves loved and loves the process and the films and. You know, that's the kind of stuff where, you know, again, when you get that kind of opportunity to talk to people, like that's when you guys had your Bob Salen piece, you know, that's the stuff we get excited about, you know, the folks totally. who actually do it and and kind of, um, you know, we're there, uh, you know, and are not the, the, the stars, we're not the, you know, have a different, you know, recollection or different kind of experience of it. Um, but also just like, I think to correlate with Kevin saying it, like, that you could be a nice guy, <laughs> like you could be yeah. a good person, love it, and still practice. Uh, you know, was is, is I always found that really inspiring about. Robert. I remember we were in pre-production uh, in West LA in an office that Fox put us in a small suite of offices to, for prep, and uh, and it was the uh, Ralph was leaving early, and Ralph did not ever leave early. Ralph was there in the early to late. And I said, oh, where are you going? And he was going to DeForest Kelly's memorial service. Oh, wow. Which, again, is a, having no connections to Trek whatsoever, uh, I, I thought was, was meaningful. And then I got sad and started thinking about the time when they would all start, start to be gone. Yeah. It's amazing when you look at this picture how many of the cast yeah. are, you know, are gone uh, at, at this point. And, it, and it's sad, but it's, it's so... You know, Ralph's so great. Harv needed somebody like Ralph because you see what Salon did on two and what Ralph did on three, four, five, six. And, um, and, 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 and Ralph was getting it done. And this is something that we say, you know, to a lot of the fans who only want to hear what the actors have to say. You know, somebody like Walter would be on the picture for five days. You know, Nichelle, maybe a few more. Even D, he's not there every day. And when he is, most of the time he's in his trailer. These people like Ralph Winter are there in prep. They're there every day. They're in yep. post. They, you know, they're the ones who have. They know things not even we know. You know, like the, the Bob Salen episode they, where they he can just, tell you everything. Yeah. 
Yeah. They know everything. They know where the bodies are buried. They know how these things got made, the, what they did right, what they did wrong. That's why they're the gems, the people that we want to talk to, as opposed to, you know, not that there's anything wrong with talking with to the actors, but they don't know. People. Yeah. He was always, Ralph, I say what? I mean, he, he, whenever we talked about it, he was not, it's not that he was unsparing, but he was honest. Like he, he looked at each one of these movies and could look back and say, this was right, this was wrong, and tried to use that understanding, that experience to inform the next one. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's how you do it. It's like, you can't, you know, it's like you make one movie, you're like, we did it. And then your reward is generally, you get to do it again. That's it. That's right. Like, if you're lucky. Do it again, you, cheaper. You you, yeah. You, or yeah, you just get Absolutely. to keep going. That's the only victory. And that's not something before you start working in the business that you understand how to appreciate, like, and how to find joy in, in just that. I mean, like, hey, you got to love doing it. And I, Ralph was one of the first, you know, back, I just, one of the first people that I knew that were in a studio. And it was just that, that really embodied that, um, who had been through different seasons of his career and was now kind of in the middle of X-Men and um, still was having fun. And I thought that was really great. You know, this Ralph not- said, one of one, the, the movie that Ralph did that he gets a lot of attention for now or comes up. I don't remember if you mentioned this on your, on your show, Hocus Pocus, Ralph right. Winter produced right. Hocus Pocus and it came and went. And now I think when it comes up, that's the movie people want to talk to him about. Yeah. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Generational. It's amazing that that's a film. Yeah. They, you got no attention when it came out and now it's like this beloved classic. Yeah. That's what I love about film, right? Is that it 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 grows, evolves. Wizard of Oz was a disappointment when it first came out, right? Yep. We all know. And uh and I think that's I think that's true. And you can revisit it like we all did today with Star Trek Three, the search. Terry, you wanted to say something. Speaking of hocus pocus. Well, I was uh, just the you know, people who were there every day, uh uh, you know, Mike Akuda started on Star Trek Three, was there every day in the art department. And uh, you know, recent Steve and Kevin know this. I uh I, Mike's like, will you help me go through my old stuff? These boxes he has in his garage. And you would literally open up a box and there'd be like 10 file folders on the, you know, go climb a rock shirt that Kirk wears in five or the good morning captain uh, graphic in three. Mm-hmm. And it's right. been, and it's in it and call sheets and, and memos about everything and how much we're, I mean, we've all made stuff and, we all know like one tiny scene could have them 20 meetings behind it that you don't know. But Mike kept all of it and just going through it. He's like, I don't understand. Like I would sit there for hours, hours and now like four or five hours pouring through all these documents. He's like, why do you find this interesting? I'm like, this is incredible. It's like living like history. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yes. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, but, but well, they got their top men working on it. It'll be fine. Right. But the uh, the amount of of the visuals of the bridge and and how much that carries through all the way from three to next gen and beyond to Picard season three that the the Akutas are responsible for is extraordinary. No, absolutely, and that's why when I was running fifty year mission, it was like I said, it's like Trek archaeology. You know, when I find all these old memos, and you know, when I found the famous uh, Gene Roddenberry excoriating Shatner and Leonard for being egomaniacs and telling them what he really thought of them, I mean, it was like the holy grail. It was incredible. So it was, it was, it was so. It's so much fun to come across that stuff and those those old files. I mean, I remember when I bought Cinefantastic. 
when we bought the and we got the files for Preston's article for which ended up becoming the book Return to Tomorrow. How exciting it was to see this famous article that was never printed on Star Trek: The Motion Picture. So. Um, yeah, I mean, we look, we all love movies and we all love Star Trek. So it's all interesting to us. So uh, before we wrap up, I just want to let you give your closing statements as, uh, and, and, you know, to sum up, you know, your, your passion for this movie, we, where you, it might have let you down and, and what you think its lasting legacy is here on the 40th anniversary. And then we're going to let you guys go. <laughs> so because I could talk <laughs> about this, I could do this all day. But uh, we're not. Uh, uh, so Mark. we'll start with you, Terry. Um, what, uh, well, Mark, I'm so glad <laughs> uh, because I, I took little notes on my, my, my phone while I was watching it. But I mean, look, the bottom line, I think the, the thing for me is how ballsy the movie is, like blowing up the Enterprise, killing his son, uh, even the fact that they're going to undo the death of Spock uh, is it sort of changes Star Trek forever from this point, this movie, because now anything goes, now anything can happen. You know, five, four, five, you couldn't have Star Trek four without Star Trek three in every way. Like they're paying the consequences. They're trying to get home. You have a Spock that's not quite Spock. You have that whole arc, uh, even all the way to six with the fact that he, like he has a personal grudge against the Klingons because they killed his son. So uh, I think it's, um, Pivotal in all in all of Star Trek uh, and in in its history, uh, I would say probably the thing that occurred to me the most, the, the thing that works the most against it, is the title. It's the search for mm-hmm. Spock. You just know he's coming back, you know, right. yeah. by the title alone. I wish there was something more poetic uh, in, in that regard. And I would say the only other thing I will say is the 4K gives you a spectacular shot of Leonard's mm-hmm. chest hair for pond, <laughs> and there's one hair. <laughs> That is like about four inches long. Good. <laughs> so we can, we, we can reveal that um, Seven of Nine is carrying uh, Shaw's Katra now. That's how no, you're going to get at no, it. No, yeah. It's not happening. Oh, okay. I thought that was going to be about chest hair. I'm so glad it was. Uh, okay. <laughs> Asbel, Star Trek Three. final closing thoughts. I mean, as, 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 as much as I enjoy... Um, proving Darren wrong in all of these episodes. It's more than that. It really is. Um, I get a lot of joy out of the film, out of this conversation. No, um, I'm kidding, Darren. Nice. You see, you guys can't <laughs> see what he's doing to me uh, on camera at home. Um, it's a, Look, I, I, I think it's kind of... I, I love the movie. I've always loved the movie and, and love it in different... Unlike some of the other ones, love it in different ways as an adult for seeing kind of what went into it the challenges of, of um, you know, again, a, a series that was kind of going to be a show again, then was a movie that worked, but then they said you got to spend a lot less, and then they gave it to Harv in the TV department. Like, it sort of had a very strange, for something so popular, we talk about IP, we talk about all the things that we seem to, you know, drive us all today, um, you know, that it, that it got made with, um, you know, not, not much more money, um, they had to get let Leonard direct it, um, which was presumably a, a a factor, if not a condition, of his returning, um, which was a pretty big risk in a lot of ways. And I can only imagine. I mean, I know just from talking to you guys how much the Shatner sort of needed to kind of get his due on five and all of that. That and Harv not being, you know, kind of ever thought of as a writer in the way that you know, certainly not in the way that you guys 
are and and Terry and, and Ash and all of you guys like and so you're like oh man the the that guy's gonna write it like himself that the film is so that its themes are so directly dramatized in the action um in and again simple not simplistic ways um is so powerful that the story is still about Kirk it's about his love for his friend it's about the fact that he will go to whatever lengths necessary, including destroying the only thing that's ever been debatable about what he loves the most, which is the right. shit. Um, he'll basically go all the way. And when he and when Bone says what you always do, you know, turn death into a fighting chance to live. I'm like, that's what I want for my heroes. Like that's that's change, you know, in a way that like that kind of and to and to build off of of how well, you know, God, to follow. Nick Meyer in in that way too to get to the sort of something that Spock was trying to tell me I feel young and then you know continue those themes so that it wasn't just that the story picked up where our heroes left off but that there was growth you know that there was real like in a movie that again like written by the producer directed by a first time guy a franchise that was given seemingly less money than before to to render it and yet still hit those marks right up until the end where like we've talked about we started we started with the end where the suspense of you know oh god is it going to work it's going to be dangerous for you i choose the danger hell of a time to ask and yeah. then it works and that even then you're like maybe he's not spock and then he turns around and says your name is jim and you're just like that's great like as a, in terms of just how these things can sometimes come together or not come together with all the great intentions that it comes together as well as it does, given those first time, let's say first time elements, um, is pretty special, honestly. And I, I do think, like we said, for me, the the issue was always the sort of lack of production value for the Genesis planet. I think you know a little bit of of I mean, not, I wouldn't say much in the Starfleet stuff. I didn't think that was great. I always loved the sort of. I remember it was even in the trailer the the great shot of whatever kind of, oh, you were at some control station with a view of space dock. And then you could have the ships and you could have, they used it again for the stealing the Enterprise sequence. And it was just, you know, man, that was so cool. Because for me, just there, for what it's worth, the idea of space dock having a con enclosed, safe space, not just from attack, but from, you know, stellar detritus, uh, you know, to protect the fleet. Um, seemed like a pretty good idea to me always but anyway but that's that's what it is for me it's special because i think it's very much um uh, a great it's it's a great chapter for those characters and those actors and kind of set me up for i didn't know i mean who knew four was going to be kind of what it was like we were like i said we were all just in the lunchroom going what are they what ship are they going to get next yeah um so it was dc comics um, yeah, and of course, I, obviously, Maltz's line, you said you'd kill me, I lied, must have influenced Stephen D'Souza on Commando. That's like, right. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation. Um, <laughs> Kevin, what about you, uh, wrapping up? Uh, well, I think, I think uh, Terry and Steve have done it. Uh, I think, to me, it's, and in thinking about it, it is, it is the movie where the love between the characters becomes most apparent and unabashed. Uh, for the love that they have and willingness to throw it all away to go on this mission. The, the, the heist is not just a cool starship heist. 
it's these characters throwing in with one another in a way that they did on the original series from time to time, but certainly didn't really do and or have the opportunity to do in one or or two. Um, and I think, yes, I mean, loving Star Trek is looking past production uh, issues, right? That's what that's why, you know, I show episodes, of the original series to people and they have a hard time getting past the paper mache sometimes. And then you go, never mind that. Look at the idea. Look at the characters. Look at the smile on Spock's face after uh, he learns that Jim is alive um, uh, at the end of a month time. It's one of the, I rewound that maybe 50 times the first time I saw that. Um, and, and three connects to that in the emotion and the love for the, for the characters. And I think all of the criticisms are, are a thousand percent justified that many of you brought up. I think a big one, I think Terry did something in his show that made me realize a uh, uh, inadequacy of two and three, which is not caring for Kirk's son that much, right? I didn't, mm -hmm. I don't care that much about Kirk's son in two or three when he dies. Yep. Terry introduces Shaw this and I, I was biased against that character in uh, in early episodes of, of <laughs> season three. I was like, "Who's this guy?" Then he starts to turn. Then I care about him when he spoiler alert dies, and I go, "How did this guy make me care about this nobody, uh, this new nobody character that I haven't spent forty years with, and I care about him when he's when he's gone?" And that didn't that didn't happen with Kirk's son. In uh, in three, so okay, um, but uh, but there is more right than wrong with the movie, and watching it, and it gets better every time I see it. I appreciate it more and more every time I see it, and now thinking of it as the as the Genesis trilogy, which did Paramount Plus should, although it's, they're not even on Paramount Plus right they're now. Not on no, they're on Max. Max, yeah, 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 weird. But they should have a, you know, I love having been a part of a. Franchise made up of 30, soon to be 34 movies. Yes, they're all in a row, but I also think that we have trilogies within them sure. and theories within them. So the, the notion of the Genesis trilogy being being sub-labeled on Max or Paramount Plus when they <laughs> when it goes back to it someday, I think would be cool. And it, it, of course, Star Trek obviously looms so large in all our lives. And it'd be great to have a conversation at some point about, because I mean, we've talked about this before, the influence of all good things on Endgame and, and, and Star Trek in general on what you do. Steve, we've talked a lot about how Star Trek has influenced you. And obviously we know the influence of Star Trek on Terry. And I, you know, Kevin mentioned how, how wonderful, uh, Shaw was, but of course you did not repeat the same mistakes. Um, with that wonderful performance from Ned Spielers as Picard's son, that Merrick Buttrick and uh, Kirk's son, which was a missed opportunity to introduce a new character, which you avoided all those you know problems and introduced a wonderful new character to the mythology, who was Picard's son. But uh, again, well, I, that's I appreciate that. But you, like again, who knows, right? Like maybe. Merrick had the best audition. I've had that happen to me a million times. The best audition there ever was, and then try to do the best you can in editorial. You know, like uh, I, I've said this know. before, and then I'm really going to let everybody go. But uh, Kirsty and Merritt were cast by Gary Nardino, 
Mm -hmm. uh, because they were the only characters in Star Trek II cast by the head of the television division at the time because there had been plans that if Star Trek II hadn't worked to spin them off into a new Star Trek TV series. Right. So he was responsible for casting those mm. two, and you can tell because Merritt was very much a a, a TV actor. He's you know he's quite he's good in Square Pegs, Square Pegs. Um, so. You know, so it's not that he was a bad actor, but you know, but then who also you're the dealing David with the egos. Who was you dealing with the cast saying in, in Trek Phase Two that got that small part in the motion picture? David Gutrow. Yeah, yeah Zon. But you're, you're dealing with actor egos where it's like, I'm, are these guys going to replace me? So you know, nobody was rooting for. Kirsty or Merritt, and they, they, you know, I think that's also part of the reasons why they're away from the main cast for so long, too. Um, but anyway, that's a Back, conversation for another episode. Thing, like, can you imagine how satisfying it would have been if Kirsty Alley was through all the way through six? Yeah, six. yeah, yeah. That, that that turn when it's yeah, would have liked six, but if she would have. Right. Actually, exactly. you're not like six, Steve. How do you not like six? That's shocking to me. Shocking because, because there's racism in the Enterprise crew. They're, but that's the main reason. Yeah, well, I'll no, send but, you the episode where he loses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what you get from Mister Staff. My opinions are well documented, sir. But, but I, I, I you know. <laughs> the intellectual puppet of the Federation. I, I, I hope, we're, much I hope. Le, we're much less fiery offline. Just FYI, I, 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 I hope like, you'll uh, all climb the steps. This of is Mount like Rocky with us again to talk about Star Trek Five, because that that will be one for the ages. But this Look, this was great. I I just I just want to say my, he doesn't want to let it go. I, I don't want to let it go because part of oh, the no. joy, look, look, I know we're going long, but part of the joy yeah. of being able to talk about Star Trek with other people who are just as passionate as you are about it and being able to have different opinions on things is what makes this all work. It's, it's the joy of going to conventions back in the uh, 70s and 80s. It's the joy of talking about things online. It's about talking with your friends about things that you all love. And that is what makes this wonderful. Yeah. You're here. This was a Great. wonderful discussion with some wonderful super fans. Super fan, uh, Terry Mattel, Steve Asbell, Kevin Feige. Thank you so much for joining us for this 300th episode of the Trexperts. This is one for the ages, and um, I, I'm so appreciative for everybody uh, spending so much time with us today to talk about the lasting legacy of the search for We went in search of, and we found some interesting. We found Bigfoot. So uh, thank you guys <laughs> congrats, so much. Congrats, guys. Congrats, congrats on 300 on episodes. Yeah. Thank thank congrats on 300. You guys are doing a real great service to fandom in general, but obviously particularly for Trek. And it's really, I'm glad, I'm glad it exists and, uh, and look forward to, uh, to 300 more. Oh, God. My goodness. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> anyway, on, on behalf of all of us, uh, thank you to our audience, and we'll see you next week for an all-new episode. Until then, Steve, you want to take us out? Steve Asbell? Take her out, keep on, Mr. Asbell. Uh, keep on trekking. Ingloriously. At, at least. Of? Of, of, of course. <laughs> yes. I didn't engage. Take two. Okay. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, Darren, is this rumor going around that you've got a new podcast? Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's Trexperts adjacent. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fun thing. Uh, you know, we what all is know, it? We all, it's called the Weirded Beardos. Yeah. And before you react, uh, it's, uh, it's Kirk Thatcher, our uh, favorite punk on the bus and myself just talking about stuff, talking but about I hate our, him. You don't hate him. No, I'm kidding. I'm doing a oh. song from Star Trek Four. I oh, hate you, right? Right, right, right. I hate I you. Hate I berate you. you. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But I don't yes, berate yes. him and I don't hate him. And if he's no. involved with you, then I love you. Well, thanks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's basically just us talking about sort of uh, all things related to our history years? of working in the industry. You know, oh. together we have like 78 years of experience working in the in the uh, entertainment biz. I'm going to have uh, to listen to that. I thought it was about maintaining your beards or something. It has nothing to do with beards, actually, which is uh, kind of funny. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's fun. We just, we basically hang out for an hour every other week. So, uh, come and join us. Look for, uh, uh, the Weirded Beardos on Spotify. If you just want to hear the audio and, uh, we're actually on YouTube as well. The Weirded Beardos. Great. Can't wait to check it out. Thanks. First, uh, start of the right and straight on till morning.